This episode of the MJ Cast is dedicated to Donald Shackelford Jr., who tragically passed away shortly after the recording of this episode. Donald, brother of our guest today, Sean Shackelford, was affectionately known to all as Peanut. He was an outstanding basketball player, honorably served his country in the US Army, and was loved by all, especially by his son, parents, and little brother. May Donald's memory live on. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to episode 134 of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and I'm here with two great people. I'm back with co founder of the MJ Cast, Q, and a special guest who I'll introduce very shortly. But, Q, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello, I'm back. I'm back on the MJ cast due to popular demand, I'm going to say. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm so excited to be here with you again recording. We've got a great uh, regular news and discussion episode coming up with a very special discussion uh, with somebody that we've been wanting to talk to for a very, very long time. Uh, Sean Shackelford is here with us. Sean is a listener who's been with us for many years. I'm going to ask you in a second, Sean, how long you've been listening for, but welcome to the MJ cast. It's great to finally have you on the, uh, on the show. I'm very excited to be here. And I've been listening for roughly about three years. And you guys are good listening when I go to work um, or when we're on road trips. Oh. Absolutely. I, I can agree. I still tune in every time there's an episode for my commute to work. That's great. That's great. All right. So, Sean, a couple of the reasons that I'm so uh, happy to be finally talking to you, we've, we've been kind of talking on Twitter over the years about, you know, your love of, of the Jackson family and the Jacksons uh, as a group. But uh, also, I mean, you and I, we both we both work in schools. I'm a head of department for, for history and you, uh, up until pretty much our recording date today, were, were a school principal. You've just been given uh, an incredible promotion. So, uh, I can't wait to geek out with you a little bit and talk about school. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's been a, a crazy year, but you know what? We made it through and uh, I'm excited about next year. Yeah, that is great. And and you know what? Congratulations. You've just been recently in the last 24 hours made the Executive Director of Student Support and Diversity for Port Huron uh, Area School District. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, I'm excited to get down to, to business and I'm um, working for a great superintendent and work for a great district. So, district. so I'm very excited. Yeah, now that is awesome. I, I had to do my research on you this morning because I know I know from your tweets that you've always been incredibly passionate about students and, and diversity in, in schools and, and inclusion. I read this article that you did this morning um, with The Keel where you talk a lot about great things like restorative practices with students and, and also mentoring and coaching. And I found what was really interesting in this article was how you came when you first got to the school. It was talking about how 
there was a lot of white teachers in the school and you came in wanting to really turn around this issue of disproportionate behavior uh, outcomes, I guess, with, with for black students in the school. And I think you said in the interview that there was a feeling among some of the staff that you you wanting to change that around they some of the white staff even felt that that was racist towards them wanting to turn that around a little bit i just thought that was incredible that you had such a passion for that right right there yeah it was it was you know our our, our school had been uh, flagged for uh disproportionate referrals and suspension of black students superintendent at the time uh, felt it was important that we really address that issue. And the, the the number one thing we did was we came in and we just started talking about implicit bias and what it is and, you know, how it relates to the classroom. And yes, some of the teachers did feel like we were calling them racist. Um, they were taken aback. And what you also have to understand is I'm the only black uh, staff member in the building. Mm. What? So teachers secretaries, custodians, but we do have about 20% uh, students of color. And so it was it was different. Um, and so it, it was going, obviously when you do that kind of work, it's going to take time. But I will tell you, I had a great team um, working with me and we eventually, we eventually got there, but it was just getting people to understand that in some situations you do treat kids differently. Um, and there's a lot of that has to do with bias. And I had to, you know, share with them some of my own bias as well. And I said, we all come with it, but it's about recognizing it and, you know, and doing something about it. And so I think we we did a good job of really reducing the number of suspensions. Um, I created a refocus room where there was an area where kids can go. And if they needed to blow off steam or if teachers needed a break, we would send them there as opposed to writing them up on a referral and then eventually suspending them. Um, so we, we did those types of things. And then also because uh, our black students, in particular, our black boys were being suspended more. I, you know, I reached out to some of the black men in the community and asked them to come in and mentor some of our boys. So we had a group that were that we were meeting with um, every Wednesday. We bring them pizza and pop and the men would just sit and talk with them. And it made a huge difference. So I'm really excited to continue that work, but on the district level for our schools and our students. That That is brilliant. And and I can hear that passion in your voice. And yes. I tell you what, in, in iBlock where I work, I think I need a refocus room <laughs> because there's some lessons I walk out of where I need to blow off some steam as well. Yes. But that <laughs> that sounds awesome. And, and this is why we love at the MJ cast every once in a while doing an episode where we shine a light on one of our listeners or some of our listeners who just do incredible things. So the MJ community is so full of amazing people doing great things. So again, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, that's okay. Another thing I love about your uh, presence online and your social media is the great family-focused posts that you and your wife, <laughs> Jill, do. I, As a dad of, of one kid, a, a, a daughter, uh, I, I look at your posts and I'm like, wow, this guy is a great dad. I just love you. You've obviously got a very love filled family and, and so much support. So I, I just love the stuff you're doing there as well. Thank you. We, we, we try, you know, we have three girls. Our oldest is eight years old and our twins will be six next week. And so they keep us busy. I love my wife. I love my girls and um, life is good. And I always say that life is good. That's great. Now, Q, I hope you don't mind, but I got a couple of more little uh, teaching-related questions just to get you back for all the aviation questions you threw at Brad Buxer. 
And the train game with Big Al. <laughs> yeah. Tra- no, games. I'm loving it. Though I just wanted to say, like, wow, those lucky kids in your school and your district, Sean, like, they're very lucky to have you and also your daughters. Like, and, yes, that would keep you very busy with twins and an eight-year-old. That would keep you super busy. Yes. Yes. And and I will also say that, you know, I really love my school community. I'm, I'm sad that I'm going to be leaving them. Um, but they all know. They all know that I'm a huge Jackson fan, and so I do. Every once in a while, I'll get a Jackson-related gift from someone, either on my staff or from um, one of my parents. So uh, I'm I've been very lucky, very lucky. Oh, that that is sweet. Every once in a while, I get that kind of thing as well. We got a, a school. Um, we got a like an awards night coming up in in a in a month or two at our school to recognize all the the academic achievers from the year and i've heard cuz last term i was i was i had the privilege of being a deputy principal for a term and because i was in charge of the performing arts department for that term i've heard that they are currently rehearsing a student choral version of will you be there to do cool. going to be very special <laughs> I, I I love it. I love it. And Jamin, I have to ask you: Do you have any desire to go into administration? Well, I was actually going to bring that up with you because I wanted to know what made you take on that leap of getting into administration. Because I feel like, I mean, there were some things I loved about being a deputy for the last term, but I don't know. There was just something in me that just keeps drawing me back to the classroom, the kids. I just, I don't know whether it's not being ready or whether I just, my my number one main passion is to do with history and students. But I just feel like by the end of my experience doing it, I mean, by all accounts, I, I did a great job, but I just feel like my passion is still there in the classroom with the kids. Then I would tell you, stay there. But I will tell you, for me, I, I was tapped early. Um, and often I would say by people who would just say, hey, you have that presence. We see it in you. And I resisted it for a long time until I couldn't resist it any any longer. And once I made that leap, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was assistant principal for one year. Then my superintendent immediately made me a principal um, at an elementary school. And then from there, I've, I've been an ele- uh, a principal at all levels, elementary, middle school, and high school. And so it's one of those things where I stopped resisting you know, what my calling was. And obviously my calling is to lead. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I do understand people, certain people, cause I see, I see it in some people and I try to, you know, encourage them as well. Um, but they always, some, some people just tell me they want to stay in the classroom. That's where their passion lies. And so when you have that, I don't, I don't, I leave it alone. I just, <laughs> I let people stay where their passions lie. Um, and, and, and really you know, pour into them uh, and and help them to continue to be good teachers. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, we we need great leaders like yourself in schools who are able to inspire and and encourage teachers. So I think there's a place for for everybody and 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 what people want to do. I I, I don't know. I'm I'm still in my 30s, so we'll, we'll we'll see what the future brings when my kid, you know, when Olivia's a little bit older. And I found the hours to be very very difficult to manage. You know, with a with a family and a young kid, uh, definitely a step up in terms of commitment hour-wise beyond being a head of department. But um, yeah, we'll see what the future brings. I got to ask you, Sean, I've I've let you know what my teaching area is. I love history and I want to know back when you were a teacher in the classroom, what what are your main areas? I taught English. Cool. I was a high school English teacher, taught grades 9 through 12, and I was also a middle school English teacher 
as well. So that leads me to how how much of a place do you think Michael Jackson and the Jackson family and their art should have in the classroom? Uh, see, I was a big proponent of, you know, bringing the arts into the classroom. It's funny, I, I can't remember, it was a colleague of mine, and I want to say she was teaching Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and I can't remember which text she was teaching, but I, I said, well, you know what, I think I have a video that you might, you know, you might want to share with the kids. And it was the ghost short film. And I remember I gave it to her. And she was she, you know, she showed it to her first couple of classes and she came back to me and she said, you know, the kids absolutely love that. This is great. And so she was able to try to make I remember this conversation that this is over 10 years ago now. But I remember her talking about how she made the connections, you know, as the day went on, as she after she watched it a few times, she was able to make the connections to whatever they she was teaching with Edgar Allan Poe to what was happening in the video. That's yeah, that is great. I also love weaving in Michael Jackson as much as I can. And in the, in the last portion of our show, when we dig into your fan story, we'll talk uh, a little bit more about that. Okay, Q, we good to move on, or do you want to hear more teacher talk? <laughs> no, we're good. I was gonna. Uh, no, we're all good. I loved listening to that. That was cool. It's like I was in the classroom. Nice. But that was cool. But I was going to ask, um, what's new with you, Jamin? How's things? It's been a while. Uh, pretty good. Like, really. I mean, like, I just kind of summed it up. My whole life has kind of been, how do I put this? But I took on that challenge of being a deputy principal for the last 10 weeks. This is my first week of term three. But term two was that whole new role for me. And uh, I went into it having that kind of feeling. I've always had that feeling of, it, could this be for me? You know, the first seven weeks of it, I, I was really loving. And then sort of by the end, it was that old feeling of, man, I miss the classroom, man, I miss my department and history. And and that feeling just came back and sort of took over. And I knew the direction that I had to go in from there. Yeah, it's been wild, really. And now I'm just in this really happy phase right now where I'm just loving being back, doing what I, what I love and spending time with my family. And yeah, everything's good. Although I will say uh, there's probably a big difference. I'm not, I'm not really sure, Sean, what the layout or the, what, what it feels like right now where you are in the US with, you know, coronavirus and everything like that. But, you know, we keep going through periods of lockdown in Australia because the vaccination rates are so low compared to what's going on in America. So, Q, you'll know all about it as well. But oh, here, it, it's 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 lockdowns, it's masks, it's the same as it was a year and a half ago. So, Sean, what's it looking like there in Port Huron? Well, in Michigan, we are pretty much back to normal. You know, our vaccination rate for the state is at about 62%. And so, Whoa. obviously, we were... We were trying to get up to about 75 percent, but it's it's pretty much back to normal. Uh, I think people wear masks. My, you know, we wear masks when we're out, but there are people who now choose not to. Uh, and so and I, but I believe California is going back to the mask mandate. And so it's it's pretty much in the U.S. It's it's a story of those who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated. And, you know, you're seeing the spike in the areas where people are not vaccinated. Mm. Who would have thought? Exactly. Now, Q, how have you been? Been a while since you've been on. Uh, yes, it's yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Um, what's new? Well, 
Uh, I've got Perm. That's new since yeah. last year. Rocking, <laughs> rocking the curls. Rocking the curls since January. You sent me a photo the other day of you like stapling things, and, you, and I'm like, "What no. are you doing today?" I'm stapling stuff. No, no, no. The opposite. I was so oh. I'm on light, light ground duties. One of my tasks, which I stretched out for like four weeks, which was great, was removing <laughs> staples from paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> removing staples from paperwork so it could go into like some shredding bin yeah. for a shredding company. So I stretched that out and then I got given another job which was um, removing from these big thick um, manuals, like phone book thick manuals, the sort of spiral yeah. Uh, it's like a plastic spiral that goes through the side of the manual. I know what and you mean, then, yeah. yeah, and the plastic cover. And I'm like, oh, can you remove all these covers and these spines so we can then put this paperwork in the shredding bin as well? And I was like, yeah, sure, thinking it was going to take ages. But after doing like three of them, I figured out a way of doing it really super quickly and I can remove the spiral in less than a minute. And, but then I'm like, oh, no, now I've done so many, there's not much to do left. <laughs> so what other boring job am I going to get given after this? I've sort of had to slow that down and pretend I don't know how to do it very fast. Well, I bet you can't wait for things to go back to normal. Um, yeah, well, it's going to be a while, I think. Um, but I also help board flights. So I get to run over to the airport and help the, the ground staff board the flights, which I love doing because I love boarding anyway, and the ground staff love having me there. But I'm that crazy person at five in the morning that's like, good morning, happy Monday, have a great flight. Oh, you got a window seat, that'll be great for a nap. And, like, I'm so hyper and engaged at crazy hours of the early morning when the sun's not up. So they like that positivity, but they look at me and go, what? is this guy on? What sort of coffee has he had? <laughs> and I haven't even had a coffee at that point. I've only had a <laughs> cup of tea at my 3 a.m. breakfast. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. So what do you like after you've had a Starbucks? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have Starbucks in my state, so sadly. But oh. no, there is plenty of airport cafes. So I get a coffee about probably 8 o'clock in the morning when there's a lull in the departures. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, it just maintains. But, yeah, I think I'll be on the ground for a couple of months possibly yet. I've got um, some sort of joint injection into my shoulder on Tuesday. I had an injection four weeks ago, cortisone into the bursa because we we're hoping it was just bursitis. Yeah. But it looks like it's capsulitis. So now I need a different injection into the shoulder capsule, hoping that helps because it's mm. starting to freeze up. So I'm not looking forward to that because that will be a painful one in comparison to the previous one. But hopefully it helps in the long term. So, yeah, I think that's we're all caught up now. That's all, about it. We're all good. Just Sorry, listeners, we will talk about MJ stuff, <laughs> I promise. The, <laughs> the longer we do this show, the more old man stuff we start talking about. So today's an update on Q's shoulder oh injury. God. <laughs> it's like when you talk to your parents, it's like, okay, let's go through all your medical appointments for this last week. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so another reason that we have Sean on the show is because Sean loves the Jacksons, and we love the Jacksons. Yes. And so, Sean, you 
uh, you you have told us before that your favorite era of the Jacksons and Michael Jackson is that late 70s to very early 80s. And our first news topic for today is how the Jacksons are really putting an emphasis back on that era as well with their re-releases of their um, albums from that period. And along with that, they've also put out a couple of videos now for the remixes of Can You Feel It? So we've got two videos that have just come out. One of them is called the Kirk Franklin Remix. Uh, which is lots of fun, lots of great choreography and vocal collaborations going on there as well. Very, you know, original type of music being woven in. And uh, it really showcases some great talent. And then we also had the Jacksons and uh, Martin Luther King remix come out of Can You Feel It, which is just, just I love the that song in particular or that remix. Uh, and then we'll talk about the video. So, Sean, have you had a chance to, first of all, get those album reissues? And then have you seen the videos too? So I have not been, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping. I, I, I was used to be before I became a dad. Uh, I was on top of it. I would get it the first day. I'm slipping a little bit. So I'll make sure that I'll get those. I'm planning on getting those sometime in the next couple of weeks. I have seen the Kurt Franklin one and I absolutely, and I'm kind of leery when it comes to those kind of remixes because um, they could be hit or miss, but I absolutely love the Kurt Franklin remix of Can You Feel It? There was just something about, you know, the call and response, you know, angle that he took with that, you know, that's the tradition of the, you know, black church in America, you know, so the way that the way he weaved that tradition into that song and really, you know, put that emphasis on Michael's verses. Um, there was just something that about that one that really, you know, stuck with me. Uh, the other one I just seen bits and pieces of, I know there's a clip going around on Twitter where I think Jackie is dancing at the end of it. So I've just seen that little bit of uh, the clip from it. And so I actually kind of I've heard that one, but I've not seen the entire video. And so of the two, I like the Kirk Franklin better. Um, but it's always good to see Jackie, you know, on screen dancing. Cute. That's such a point that I'm so glad you raised about the Kirk Franklin one, Sean, because I watched that yesterday um, and it was set like, yeah, like you said, in a church. So it was um people dancing in the, the aisle and the pews of the church and then choir ladies in their blue gowns dancing as well. And now you've made that connection for me about the, you know, black church tradition, which is so much more exciting than our church over here, I can tell you that, which is one of the reasons I stopped going because it was so boring. Now that absolutely makes sense. And I read a comment on YouTube, I think it was, of I think someone that helped choreograph that video, which let me just bring it up because I screen capped it actually, uh, from Josh Taiwan Williams. And if I can just read a little bit of his comment, because it actually talked about the church aspect, he said on the YouTube comments, I'm honored to be asked to collaborate as a dancer choreographer. We don't get a lot of say in the final outcome. For me, this was my hardest job to complete. We had a week or two, but we pulled it off. I'm happy with the outcome. Like I said, I was super nervous to present this in a church. Would have preferred outside, but I did my best not to do anything out of pocket and keep it presentable. It's hard to do that as a dancer, especially to Michael. And I appreciate everyone's feedback, good and bad. So that's so 
interesting about that church connection. And for me now, that totally makes sense. But it's a beautiful video to watch. It's very classy, very respectful, beautiful dancing and choreography. And the mix of this song is really beautiful. It's a beautiful like vocal remix more than, I guess, like, you know, a sort of club or music remix. It's very vocal, heavy stylings, and I loved that. Um, and with the other video, the Martin Luther King and also Obama's featured in it as well, it's a very American marching band-focused video from the one I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it shows a lot of amazing people from black history from in the past and currently like, you know, people currently like Stacey Abrams who they feature these people and what they've, their accomplishments and achievements for the mixes. I prefer the MLK mix because it's, I don't know why I just, it's so like rousing and positive and really pumps me up when I hear it. And I, but I have actually added both of these mixes to my Spotify listening lists because I actually love both of them and it's such a good song anyway, but something a bit fresh about each of them. So yes, I like both videos and I like both mixes a lot. Can you feel is such a spiritual song and you know, yes, definitely. Interesting because, you know, when I first bought the album and put that song on, it was not my favorite song. Um, And I would always skip over that and go straight to Lovely One. And a little bit later, I'll tell you how it became one of my favorite songs. You know, so watching what Kurt Franklin did with it, uh, just the mix and then watching the video, it is it it it, it's very appropriate. And so I. the person who choreographed it um, shouldn't feel bad about it or shouldn't, you know, because, you know, when Michael danced, Michael was in the spirit. Mm. You know, that's what we call, you know, in the African-American church, you're, you're dancing, you know, dancing is okay because you're dancing in the spirit. Um, and it talks a lot about that in the Bible. And so to me, it was absolutely appropriate. Um, so which is why, you know, I, because when I first saw that, I played it over and over again for at least an hour because it just really captured me and, and it's, it's just stuck with me and so i i just think it's a, a magnificent uh remix yeah that's definitely my pick of them as well i prefer the kirk franklin video i think i prefer the like uq the uh i like the the remix for um the martin luther king one the audio but the video i prefer the kirk franklin one mainly because i think that the other one which is sort of their main one i guess is a bit of a missed opportunity in some ways like the marching band footage is cool but there's just so much of it and the stuff that i sort of preferred in it was the what you were saying cue those little flash moments to the black luminaries who have changed the world in some regard and they sort of just show that for a second with their name and what their profession was or their job but there was there didn't seem to be a lot more further footage of those people doing what they're known for uh it's sort of 99% marching band and like 1% of the the people and i think if they just flipped that around a little bit and had more footage of MLK or Rosa Parks or oh, yeah. whoever they're showing that would have been great. Well, can can I ask Sean about the marching band tradition? Because that is, for, I don't know, but to me it seems like such a unique American institution and like entertainment and skill set. And it's, yeah, featured very heavily in that video. So 
can Sean maybe enlighten me and other people perhaps listening about that and what is that and what makes it such a big thing and also so cool to watch? So I think you have, and I, again, I apologize. I've, I've not seen that entire view. I think I've seen portions of it uh, or the march of the marching band. Um, but in America, you have two types of American, uh, two types of marching bands, I should say. Um, you have your historically black uh, colleges, uh, those marching bands, um, and then you have your traditional university marching bands. And the historically black colleges, they tend to be more, you know, rhythmic. Uh, there's more dancing. Uh, there's more, you know, you know, drumline. It's 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 more, it's more rhythmic. It's definitely that which is featured in these this yeah. video. Yes. it's definitely that one. And if I'm not mistaken. Fleetwood Mac, I think for Tusk, I think they used a marching band for that particular song. Uh, they used a marching band from a historically black college. Um, I'll have to go back and double check, but I'm almost certain I just don't know which college they used. So that is the tradition of you know marching bands. So it's funny when you you know those two colleges when they play football uh, and you see the two marching bands. It is a stark difference between the two. You know, there's nothing wrong with either one. Uh, it's just your preference. And so if you've ever seen the movie Drumline. Uh, which I actually just watched a couple hours ago because it was just it was just happened to be on. That gives you a, an insight into what what they what goes into those marching bands. Yeah, I I, I love the marching band stuff. I think I think it's great. Uh, I just love the other stuff too, and I, I just wish they'd put a bit more bit of a highlight some, on on some of the footage of those uh, incredible black people. But listener Jerome Horn, I know, is going to be loving this conversation because he is a big marching band guy. Sean, have you had a lot to do with Jerome over the years? Have you spoken to Jerome? No, I have not. I know my my wife is a graduate of an HBCU, and so she's taken me to see. Usually, have a battle of the bands in the fall, and so it's it's phenomenal to see in person. Uh, it's 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 really fun. Very cool. It looks amazing. Very talented, like musicians and performers and everything. Yeah. It's. Yeah, like I said, it's not a thing over here, and I don't know about other countries either. So I was loving it in the video. All right, next news topic is the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame has inducted Michael Jackson. At first, when I read this headline, uh, I was like, finally, why didn't that happen earlier? But uh, it turns out that these guys only started doing their thing in downtown Atlanta uh, only like a month ago or something like that, or very recently. So they actually haven't had a lot of time to induct uh, people as of yet. Michael is one of the first people to be inducted. He was inducted on the 17th of June, 2021. uh, And you can see his uh, stone on the Walk of Fame at the sidewalks of Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and Northside Drive in Atlanta. Uh, And this started, like I said, in January 2021 to honor African-Americans with a monument for their achievements in entertainment. And what's cool about this particular event is that when it when it happened, Marlon Jackson from the Jacksons was actually there in honor of his brother. And so was Karen Langford, I think, representing the Michael Jackson estate. And Marlon, I haven't actually seen this speech, but I've heard that he made a very touching speech about his brother, Michael, there, which I think is really neat. I saw, I think it was on Twitter, it looked like someone just filming from the audience, a bit of Marlon's speech, and they cut it together in like multiple clips, I think, of the speech into a little video, and it was, it was very touching and very nice, and Marlon looked well, 
Um, thank you for clarifying that this organisation, really, the the Black Music Entertainment uh, Walk of Fame, only started recently because I was also a little bit confused and I couldn't really find on the website like a history of the organisation itself. So thank you for clarifying for that. So I guess Michael would be one of the inaugural recipients of this honour. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, uh, like you said, it is great to see that Marlon is improving. We know that he had some heart issues uh, just a couple of weeks prior to this event. So it is great to see him happy and out and about and doing his thing. And looking good with the bald head. (laughs) Yeah, he does look good. Very sleek. You know what, Q, remember back in the day, mm-hmm. we spoke to a guy, an author called Christophe Charlot, who wrote the Travelling with a King book? Of course, yes. I think we got. To, he's got to get a, a new version out with this in there. This has got to be somewhere Update. people are going to go. Yeah, and Sean, another place uh, you get to visit in your country to honour Michael. Very cool. Very lucky. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, we've had some changes come about with the MJ the Musical, some cast changes, uh, and uh, they've also recently just released some merch on their website as well that you can go and buy. Admittedly, I haven't had a, a look at the merch yet, uh, but the cast changes are kind of interesting because, I mean, this show is due to come out, so it's coming out in December. Uh, December 6th is the first, is the opening night. And the main person in the show, the, the the guy who was performing as Michael Jackson, Ephraim Sykes, is no longer participating in the production. So that was really big news when that happened. Uh, and he released a statement saying, it's with a heavy heart that I depart MJ. This year has brought a lot of change and opportunity. And although it's bittersweet to say goodbye to an iconic role in production, I look forward to what is to come. Thank you to the MJ team and congratulations to Miles meaning Miles Frost. I can't wait to see you shine as the king of pop and for all of us to celebrate the return of Broadway. Now, uh, as Ephraim said in that statement, Miles Frost will take place, take his place and make his Broadway debut in the production. Miles is known for his role in the TV series Family Reunion and, uh, and in the movie All In. Well, firstly, before I talk about other things to do with the musical, I want to know what you guys think about this. Like, is it at all shocking to you or... Um what do you think about this being so late in the production? Well, you know, I, when it comes to any type of retelling of Michael's life, I, you know, I, it's, it's always a concern for me because you never know which direction they're going to go in. And so that's always been my concern about this production. And so, you know, I, I, I just hope and pray that this, you know, Miles is, you know, up to the challenge. But my, you know, my biggest concern, uh, my biggest hope is that this production is quality and it focuses on the correct aspects of Michael's life uh, and career. And so that's that's kind of, you know, I was kind of shocked to see that um, so close to Showtime. But, you know, obviously we'll wait and see, you know, how it all turns out. But, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that this is a quality production. I'm not too familiar with sort of the production of Broadway shows. I've seen a number in New York on holidays in years past, but in the production side, I'm not too familiar if this is a common thing for cast changes in the 12 months or six months or so before the show debuts. So I'm not sure if this is an unusual thing. 
that's a lot of pressure on Miles Frost coming into a production that is was hopefully you know close to hitting its stride in in the rehearsals and the creation of it, and now he has to come in like at I guess a disadvantage because everyone's been working on their parts and the production for so long, and now he's coming in like with six months to go or so. So huge pressure on him. I'm sure he's not like just some guy like out of high school or something. He's probably definitely had theater experience um, and uh, other things before. So um, he would have been hired for his talent and that's a good thing. So I, I wish him well. I wish the production well, but also I hope that it is a quality production that is an accurate production. I know there are some Broadway pundits sort of bagging it out, like why is this even happening after everything of the last few years? And then they cop all of the blowback from MJ fans and stuff uh, when they do speak out and say such things like that. So it'll be interesting when it does open the reception that this gets. But hopefully it's a quality production and the quality wins out and blows everyone away and that does great, like the, the Tina musical on Broadway. So hopefully it'll be just so terrific and amazing that people will flock to it for years to come. You, you said before that you hope it's also an accurate production and the the first image that they chose to release of <laughs> Miles as MJ is him doing a pose that I don't remember Michael Jackson ever doing on stage. Yeah. And so is that a thing like does that does that bother you guys or is that or do you think in a Broadway production like this there should be some creative license for people to interpret Michael's style? I think so. I think there should be some creative license. Like for example, not related and not super similar but the Lion King musical. Like when they were like, "Oh, we're going to do the Lion King on Broadway." They Broadway people were like, "Are you kidding?" Like why? What What on earth would you do the Lion King on stage in Broadway, which is, you know, very held highly esteemed production and playwrights and directors and cast and things like that? The, the movie at the time, The Lion King, was like the animated film. The Broadway production was completely different. It is like very similar story, but the creative license made it into one of the greatest musicals ever made. They're not exactly the same, though. They're two different things. Although this is a retelling of someone's story and part of their life, it's not going to be visually the same exactly because it's Broadway. They they sort of ha- they can't recreate things because what we saw was on TV. Live production is not looking the same as if you're sitting watching a TV. It's on a stage. There's different limitations, and in some ways they can do things that they couldn't do on TV. So I think it's always going to be a little bit different. I just have to try and keep faith that it's going to be done amazing and and done with love and care. Sean? MJ's uh, dancing style is so unique to him. And so my my wish is that they be as accurate as possible with respect to his dance moves. Uh, I mean, obviously, and I agree with Q, you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, creative license, you know, they're going to have, and I'm, I'm okay with that. 
but you know you gotta be you gotta hit the the classic mj dance moves you have to hit the classic you know mj singing style those things you can't veer off you can't veer off you gotta stay true to who michael was in terms of his actual performance all right so Unfortunately, the estate is still using Lynn Nottage uh, and her book for the story, despite the fact that she's still not really clarified her comments that she made during the Leaving Neverland saga. Uh, so I guess we we hope as a community collectively that, that moving forward that that production is still respectful, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure it will be because the estate are so heavily involved in it that... Uh, like I can't imagine a way that it wouldn't be celebratory, but regardless, the the tickets are uh, are on sale right now. It's due to to launch on December six. Still, uh, the tickets start at ninety nine dollars. They go all the way up to five hundred and ninety nine. Uh, and if you go to the, I went to the website to have a look at you know like what's available still for the opening night, and I would say that a third of the tickets are still available for that opening night. But Q, as you were saying to me before we started recording, that's not unusual at the moment for Broadway with with COVID. I think, yeah, um, there is a friend of mine I follow on Twitter in New York and he is a huge theatre fan and has seen literally hundreds of shows on and off Broadway. And um, a couple of weeks back, they were talking about which shows are coming back, which shows are sadly not coming back when Broadway reopens and ticket sales. And this is uh, launching in December, which is still quite a way away. And from what I was reading on tweets that he was talking about, that ticket sales for a lot of shows, you know, are not the same as what they used to be at the moment because of the, the hit to the industry and tourism as well because there is like not there's no in, probably no international tourists coming to New York at this point so I, I wouldn't take stock too much in ticket sale figures yet closer to the date that will be that will be the main thing right thank you for summing that up Q about the ticket sales I think that's important to remember I'm less like you know originally I was a little bit hesitant around this i guess i still am a little bit but i i just think it's going to be a good thing in the end like we've got we're coming out of covid in america right now there's uh you know it's a it's a period now where people want to get out and celebrate and enjoy things and i think it's actually really good timing that this is going to be there for audiences to go and see as they start to flock to theaters again yeah and i i have to agree with you also jamie because i was a little hesitant as well but I, I'm definitely going to put this on uh, my to-do list um, and give it a shot. And uh, I think it'll be great. Yeah. All right. So speaking of events coming back, uh, MJ1 in Las Vegas returns on August 19th, just so listeners are aware if they want to go see that again. There's actually, I haven't really dug into this too much. I haven't researched it, but I think there was announce, an announcement a few days ago about a, a special event paired with that for Michael's birthday that the estate are putting on. I think they normally put on, an event connected to MJ1. So I think there will be something like that happening again this year. And Brad Sundberg, Michael's studio engineer and technical director, has also started doing his in-person in the studio events again for the first time since uh, coronavirus broke out. Sean, do you know of any Michael Jackson-related events happening in your part of the world? Not at the moment, but I will say uh, 
couple right before the uh, pandemic started, I had reached out to Brad Sundberg to, you know, have him bring uh, his uh, seminars to the Detroit area. And so we were working. Um, I was actually told him I would be, you know, I would do the groundwork and try to go out to different venues and try to set it up. And the, the we couldn't quite get it off the ground because it happened. Uh, we were tr- trying to get it together right after de- leaving Neverland. And so we didn't get a uh, the response that we wanted, but we started to get uh, some momentum. And I think he actually was able to reach out to a venue, but then the pandemic hit. So I'm actually going to reach back out to Brad and get him, try to get him to come back to Detroit. Awesome. So I'm going to present a new story now related to Neverland Ranch. The new owner, Ron Burkle, has discussed in very general sort of terms, his plans for Neverland. In a recent and rare interview for the Wall Street Journal, Ron Burkle has finally spoken about his latest purchase, Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Burkle also owned and restored and sold the Frank Lloyd Wright Ennis House in Los Feliz, where 3T and Michael filmed the Y video. thought that was quite an interesting little sidebar. Burkle and Michael Jackson, uh, Neverland's second owner, uh, had a history. Mr. Burkle said that he had visited the ranch in the mid-2000s as part of a program for disadvantaged children and hit it off with Mr. Jackson. He said that the pop star called him the next day to say that he liked him and that from now on, he would buy all his groceries at Mr. Burkle's stores. Um, Sean, do you know what chain of grocery stores Ron Burkle owns? Because I didn't know about that. I don't know. I'm going to quickly Google that. Uh, all right. I, you I do that know. and let us know because I thought that was <laughs> funny. I don't think it was Michael doing all the grocery shopping. But anyway, Somehow. <laughs> um, Mr. Burkle served as an advisor to the singer on business matters. And that was during the time Michael was working to stave off financial disaster, which was a lot of the time in the later years. Uh, Ongoing construction at Neverland Ranch has fed speculation about whether Burkle may be interested in turning Neverland into a Soho house, but he said that isn't the case. So I don't know what Soho house is, Jamin, do you? No, I don't know what even the word Soho means. I'm going to Google it now as well. I'll have all my assistants Googling things while I do the talking. He said his team is working on restoring parts of the ranch that were falling apart from neglect, such as replacing pipes and drainage and the train station, which, of course, was modelled after the Main Street train station at Disneyland, had been damaged by woodpeckers, and that is also being restored as well as the Neverland flower clock, which is iconic. Uh, Many of the roads around the ranch have also been upgraded, and Mr. Burkle has said he hopes that one day one of the trains may run again. Uh, In the words of Mr. Burkle, again, it was kind of a depressing place. It wasn't the beautiful place that it was before. It just needed flowers and life in it again. Hmm. So, good things for Neverland. Good things for Neverland, I think. Um, Restoring it, repairing it at this stage, not demolishing it. 
Uh, we know that he bought this as more of a financial purchase because if you invest in property and land, generally the prices go up because there's a limited amount of it. So it's it's not like a oh big Michael Jackson fan has bought this and restoring it and all that. It's restoring it and protecting it while he is the owner, but he may sell it down the track in the future if it's a good investment to to do such a thing. But I think at the moment it's in good hands and we should be happy about this. I'm I'm definitely happy um, that you know someone is coming in and and, and attempting to restore it. Um, the way that it should be. I visited Neverland. I got as far as the gate and I was just, I was in awe just in terms of the size of it. And I'm just, I'm, I'm happy and I'm hopeful that it will be, you know, at some point open to fans in some way, shape or form for us to enjoy it. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, totally agree. Even if it is just like a yearly thing where they, you know, like a, a group of fans get to go in that are participating in the annual celebration that they do for MJ1. Like I, you'd have to hope that at some point, if it's not, obviously because of the zoning restrictions, they won't be able to do a day-to-day, you turn up, there's a car park, you, you know, you go in, there's, that's never going to be a thing. But if they could somehow weave it in with like an annual Michael Jackson celebration, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, like a charity event. Something like that would be incredible and amazing. Absolutely. I think the fans are craving craving it. And I think, you know, it'd be a great idea. And I and I looked it up and Ron Burkle used to own Whole Foods and A P. And I think he owns now Fred Myers, Rouse, and Jurgensons. Whoa. We don't have in Michigan, so I'm only familiar with Whole Foods and A P. Yeah, there's some big brand names, big chains. And how do you go with your research of what Soho House is, Jamin? Uh, it's actually really complicated, uh, and I'm not even going to attempt to explain it. But okay. yeah, it's uh, it looks <laughs> there's lots of places around the world that can be referred to as a Soho location. Like and lots of cities have them, but I've found at least two or three different historical explanations for the for what it is. So who knows? Who knows? I actually think it was a couple of weeks ago I shared a video that when I saw Neverland, which was I think 2007, I saw it from the gates and also from uh, the perimeter from a light aircraft. I actually shared, I think it was in my Instagram stories, so I might have to share it again, the video that took from the plane and crappy digital cameras that we had back then, which were nowhere near as good as what our phones are now, which is hilarious. But – um. Yeah, it was an amazing place. And I was lucky to see it when the rides were still there. So Mm. Michael wasn't living there at the time. The animals had left the zoo, as far as I know, but the rides were actually still in place. And you can see some of that. So just remind me, Jamin, and I'll share that again. Sounds good. All right, moving on to the next news story, which was such a good one. The artist, the singer, the rapper, the entertainer, Lil Nas X, paid homage to Michael in a recent performance. It was the BET Awards, which is the Black Entertainment Awards. Uh, That was, when was it? Sunday, 27th of June, I believe. Uh, And many were calling it the best performance of the night. 
Uh, Lil Nas X performed at the Los Angeles Microsoft Theater. He is single Montero, Call Me By Your Name, a song that he released a few months ago to a huge hullabaloo, which was fantastic and so deserved. It was He'd been telling us to do that for ages, and he went and did it, and it was great, great video. Anyway, in the performance at the BET Awards, Lil Nas X incorporated the ancient Egyptian-inspired costumes and inspired by MJ's legendary Remember the Time short film. He, along with a group of background dancers, also performed parts of the choreography routine that Michael did in that epic video and played parts of the song during that choreography part in one point of his performance. The beginning of the performance is just like Remember the Times started when Michael entered in a black robe and Lil Nas X ended the performance with a steamy kiss he shared with one of his dancers, just like Michael did with Iman in the video, which I actually didn't even think of at the time. I think I was just so excited that he that he kissed one of his dancers that I didn't even make the connection. Hang on a minute. Michael did the exact same thing in the video. Yeah, I so didn't either. <laughs> I was like, duh. Yeah. So obvious now. Firstly, James, can I just say a lot of your news stories from MJ Vibe, is correct. that correct? Well, yeah. the, no, the, the notes that we, yeah. So uh, MJ Vibe has become sort of like one of the main places where we get the news stories from because Pez and the team are so good at keeping everything up to date. But a lot of our notes that we're reading from are snippets from the news stories. So if they sound yes. similar to the MJ Vibe, that's why. <laughs> well, I wanted to give credit to MJ Vibe and to the staff over there and the writers because when I was researching all of the stories and many of them had linked back to MJ Vibe, the writing of their stories was really good. Mm. And this one also impressed me greatly. So to the writers over MJ Vibe, well done on your recent stories and your recent writing. And thank you for keeping us all up to date with the news. And Jamin, you'll probably share their details later in the in the episode, but hats off to the writers. But what a great story. What a great performance. I am very curious about both of your opinions on this performance and the MJ tribute especially, but I loved it. And I was so proud of Little Nas X. And I thought it was not only an amazing tribute to MJ and to the Remember the Time video film, but uh, it was an amazing groundbreaking performance. And I just loved it. And it's about time. And yes, before I continue on, who's next? Who's going to share their opinion on this? Sean? I will say that, you know, I, I always love it when performers pay tribute to Michael Jackson. You know, uh, we went through a time where, you know, people were distancing the, themselves from Michael. And so you're seeing more and more performers who are, you know, paying tribute to him, wearing T-shirts out in public, you know, name checking him in songs. Uh, it, it is phenomenal. Um, I'm not a huge Lil Nas X fan, but I appreciate um, him, you know, being as creative as he as he was uh, to include the Remember the Time choreography, which is probably my top, definitely in my top three of all the Michael Jackson videos. And so it was just great to see. Yeah, I, I thought it was excellent. The, the choreography wasn't like it wasn't like a, a tribute start to finish where it's like oh they're doing the remember the time choreography i i felt like the fact that it was subtly woven in amongst other choreography 
actually made it more exciting when they they got into the dance break because then you you start to as an MJ fan you start to realize like oh that's the bit that's MJ and that's not and that isn't it's just it was really clever and really subtle as well and the production value was amazing the costumes were absolutely incredible I think that they even the costuming was even better than the um the Michael Jackson video maybe that's sacrilege to say as MJ no, fan I, I, I was thinking they were incredible costumes yeah. I they were amazing <laughs> absolutely brilliant but the moment where the kiss happened was so important to me and so good because it was really just shining a light on the fact that you know love is love and and it's it was great that that statement was made in such a public uh forum and it reminded me of the moment where was it madonna and britney spears kissed that that famous moment at the mtv awards where they did so it was kind of like a little bit of a throwback to that i'm in a way but like i know the reaction to it has been very in some cases ridiculous and q i'm interested to hear what you told me before the show that you'd had an interesting interaction with somebody online but i thought it was just such an an important statement to make a timely statement to make and um one that uh that was that was very important well before i share my thoughts like sean did you want to mention anything regarding the the end of the performance it was like you said it that it reminded me of the madonna uh britney spears moment um and so it was i, I almost think it was a tribute to that as well um and and so it, it i've seen the reaction um and it was to be expected and i think that's part of you know you know, that's part of his appeal. He has that shock value. And so it was to be expected and he got what he wanted. And, um, but overall it was a great performance. Uh, I have no issue with it, but I understand, I can, I certainly understand why people are upset with it, but you know, you, they have to understand he's a performer, you know, he, 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 he got the reaction that he wanted to get. Was the Madonna, Brittany, and was it Christina Aguilera? It was three ladies kissing. Was that also the BET Awards? No, that was the uh, Video Music Awards. MPT. Oh, the VMAs. Yeah, I think it was okay. the MTV Awards, I think. Right. Okay, wow. So I think for to be a part of the BET Awards, that was a huge thing for him to, to do this for, for that platform and for that audience. Absolutely, absolutely, and and so it just kind of shows how far we've come um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a culture, and obviously we still have a ways to go. But kudos to him for for being courageous enough to you know a you know do the Michael Jackson you know weave in as James said yeah. weave in the MJ you know tribute, but then also being courageous enough to the with the kiss at the end. Absolutely, for sure, hugely courageous because. Really, one of the only other times that uh, a male performer has kissed another male on stage was back in 2009 with Adam Lambert, kissed a backup dancer, at I think, at the end of his performance. And the reaction to that, and that was also after the Madonna and Britney kiss, the reaction to that was so swift and almost career-ending. And that was 2009, I'm pretty sure. And here we are in 2021. Um, it took, I think, a huge hit to Adam Lambert when he did it. And even when he was on TV news shows, they would blur that out when they were asking him about it. But then they would show 
not blurt out the Madonna kiss with Britney. It was so hypocritical and ridiculous. But yes, there has been some negative reaction, which, you know what, there is a minority of people that they are loud and that will always happen. But like you said, Sean, I think it does show how much progress there has been. And he was courageous on the two fronts of one, you know, giving his tribute to Michael because there are plenty of artists that are still afraid to do that. So that was courageous that he could do that. And then also just kiss a dancer, which is really not a big thing, but some people make it into a big thing. I was interested in the reaction of a former guest of ours, Michael Trapson, who I do like his work and, you know, his Trapson EO film is when we had him on to talk about that project, which was amazing. But he did this really long video about how has Lil Nas X gone too far and it was very ignorant and ill-informed and I was really disappointed in in his reaction to it because he would be in one breath like, I ain't no homophobe, but then in the next breath, it ain't natural. And I just think he was not qualified to speak on the topic of this at all because he was he was very much conflating two issues which are two completely unrelated and not the same thing at all. He was conflating homosexuality with the heinous allegations that Michael was accused of, which is pedophilia. Hmm. They are not related, not the same, and hugely damaging and decades of like LGBTQIA plus discrimination and abuse has literally stemmed from that same tarnishing with the same brush like really actually back to the Bible because the translation, you know, has come out recently that that translation was sort of taken the wrong way and it was more about condemning pedophiles and that sort of behavior than same-sex love and, and marriage and that kind of thing. So even all the way back to the Bible and that bad translation. But I think the reaction of Trapson was disappointing like, you know, separate to his work and his productions and everything like that. I still like, you know, Traps and EO and what he does as a, as a performer. But, yeah, I was disappointed in his uh, sort of ill-informed opinion on it and position, mixing way too many things that are not related and talking about an agenda. Like, I'm like, well, if you have a problem because of the children watching this, well, that's probably more a problem should your kids be watching these award shows and listening to this music in the first place? That would be more a parenting thing, not a performer thing. Yeah. So, and this is just like an equality thing. It's like, well, people, men and ladies have been kissing on stage forever. So, you know, it's about time that we've had some representation and this is a good thing for the kids because there are plenty of gay kids out there that have never seen this on TV, never seen this on stage never seen this in the video and they always grow up because when they don't see it, they're the ones that are shamed into feeling the way they do negative things. So to actually have this representation and I think also uh, as a black artist and to a, like a black audience, that is a massive, massive 
positive thing. Absolutely. And and I have to take a step back and turn and put my educator hat on um, because obviously, you know, and, and Jamie, you, you probably see the same thing. You know, we deal with kids who, you know, they have, you know, issues at home. They and they bring them to school because, you know, people are not accepting of, you know, of who they are. And so I always look at it as and, and, and Q, you're right. You know, it's it's a parenting thing. But it's it's a it's a teachable moment. It's a moment mm-hmm. where you are allowing your kids to watch that, to have those con have those conversations with them. Um, and so it's it's a it's a huge leap in, in the black community and, and on the BET awards. Um, and obviously, like, like I said before, you're gonna have those differing opinions. And, and it's just important that we just have those conversations and not, as you stated before, you know, not you know try to twist it and turn it into something else, you know, have the meaningful conversation because ultimately it will not only help you, but it'll help others as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think Trapson or whoever it was saying that it's attention seeking that, that concerns me because Lil Nas X is a gay man. So he's just being as genuine as you know, he's just being himself on stage. You know what I mean? Like maybe if it was a straight guy i don't know like doing it for shock value maybe but this is to me he's being an authentic genuine performer here on stage so i don't understand that point of view at all that somebody would say he's just doing it for ratings the madonna stunt but that was for attention well aren't all entertainers attention seekers yes that's <laughs> why we watch them that's true that that's a good point literally as well. why we watch them so true so true yeah. Well, it has got people talking, this performance, and uh, it is a great one. I loved it. And yes, if you haven't seen it, go watch it because, uh, you know, we uh, Michael Jackson fans have been through hell for the past few years since leaving Neverland. So it's incredible to see his choreography being shown on stage again in such a public way, especially at the BET Awards. Uh, so incredible. So so go watch it and and join in the conversation. Uh, you can talk about any of the topics we're discussing on the MJCast uh, on Twitter by using the hashtag uh, TheMJCast134, um, which is the current episode, and uh, join in that chat. All right. So Prince Jackson, Michael Jackson's son, has officially joined the MJ estate. There's a quote here. Um, released as a uh, a statement, I believe, and it says the managers believe it would be in the best interest of the estate and the MJJ business for Michael Jackson's son, Prince, to be employed by the estate and or one of its entities as a consultant on certain designated projects. Therefore, petitioners seek this court's order authorizing them to employ Prince as a consultant on such terms and for such purposes as shall be agreed upon by the managers and Prince. Actually, that must be a statement from some kind of court document or something. But regardless, uh, Michael Jackson's son, Prince, is now very much officially evolved with the estate on certain projects, which I think is a great thing because forever we've been sort of clamoring for Michael's family to have more involvement uh, with the estate. So hopefully in projects moving forward, they are even more respectful and authentic now that Michael's children have a voice in them. And, and Prince, if you're listening, I think the fan community would absolutely love the Triumph Tour yes. be released. Okay, I'm just going to put that out in the universe. <laughs> yes, please. I would. I think it. I think it would actually make a good feature film. I'm just going to put that out there, Prince. I, I back that up absolutely. Yeah, they teased us in bad in um, Michael's Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to Off the Wall, the Spike Lee doco. They teased us with that footage. We need the whole concert. Come on. <laughs> 
A- absolutely. Absolutely. I go back and I play that Randy footage over and over and over again. So please, Prince, please. <laughs> so I think this is a good thing, but I think we need to remember that there's also other family members that are basically in the same role already. I'm mm. pretty sure Jackie, Jackie and possibly Marlon. I might be wrong on that, but definitely Jackie is in that position already. So, you know, we have had some sort of family connection and it is just a consultant. So they would choose who and when and where they use these consultants. So I don't think it's a like yeah. he's not on the board of directors or anything. I don't know how much say he would have. I think I don't know if it's a symbolic gesture on Branker's behalf. I think it's a positive thing. Hopefully, it's just a first step, maybe more involvement in the future. And I think this is something that Michael wanted anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's just honoring his wishes. So um, with that, that's another reason why I'm, I'm extremely pleased about it. Um, and I'm just excited to see, you know, what he brings to the table. Yes. Hopefully, they listen to him. Yeah, I could see his involvement being particularly useful if they are going ahead and doing projects like musicals or even the the biopic that they've now officially said that they are doing prince's detail and information around growing up with michael i think would be particularly useful there maybe his his input wouldn't be as valuable in terms of the musical authenticity like maybe a studio engineer or producer would be but certainly in the broader picture of michael's life and as a father it would be very very relevant I also think in the charity aspect, we know yes. how heavily Prince is definitely focused on the charity side of Michael's humanitarian inspiration. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that it also definitely reaches out and focuses more on that. And I hope he brings some of that to the table and that they look at that and maybe refocus on that as well. I, I agree. I agree. Can I just say, Jamin, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of leery on the biopic. I'm not mm. sure if you guys have discussed this. Have, in depth. And I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I'm always I'm always reminded of the of the flex. Yeah. You know, biopic. And I'm just like, <laughs> I just hope it doesn't go down that road. Uh, well, what do you what do you think? Let, let me put it to you in a different way, because I'm also extremely wary and. Look, I see the the benefit that a good one can do for somebody's popularity. Like, just look at Bohemian Rhapsody and Queen, and that thing was massive, and the Ray Charles one, and the Johnny Cash one. and But then there's been some terrible ones, like the James Brown one went nowhere. So sometimes they can be great, and if they are great, they can create this amazing swell amongst people that haven't experienced the artist before celebrating them. But um, there is so much potential for this to go wrong. And I see its place, as I've said before, as a massive big Michael Jackson fan. I just love authentic Michael Jackson stuff. So the whole thing probably won't be for me in the end anyway, because I just want to see real Michael. But what what is it about it for you, Sean, that makes you hesitant? Where do you think it could go wrong? Just and how they decide to tell the story. Now, if you go back to the Jacksons miniseries, I actually thought they did a phenomenal job. Although, again, they they skipped my favorite era of the Jacksons. They went from Dancing Machine to Human Nature, uh, uh, you know, with a commercial break uh, in between. And, and so, I think they did a great job of that. But I think 
what ends up what will end up happening what I feel will end up happening is they will focus more on Michael after Thriller and you know there's so much there's so many layers to you know his life after Thriller and so people tend to have the t- tend to focus on like the James Brown uh, biopic which I, I love um Chadwick Boseman in in that in that role I didn't like the story uh, because there was so much more to James Brown uh, I would have loved to see James Brown as a businessman just like in the Ray Charles movie you know you got to see you know who he was as a businessman who he was as a mu- musician who he was as a husband as a father with all of his warts you know, warts and all I should say um and so you know you didn't you know you, I think you there it was too much of a focus on the negative in the James Brown biopic and i think that may end up happening with michael um they may tend to focus on the salacious tabloid type material as opposed to really digging into who he was as a person as an artist and as a man yeah you put that really well q do you want to add your thoughts i don't think you've spoken about the biopic much uh no it was i think something you touched on on an earlier episode in the year when i think branka mentioned it in projects I haven't got a lot to say. I think I agree with pretty much everything that Sean just said. I think dream casting, Rome Flynn, an African-American actor and singer, um, he was in probably his biggest role was How to Get Away with Murder, the um, series with Viola Davis. He was in that, I think, dream casting. Like he's got the jawline, he's got the cheekbones, he's a handsome man, he's like a good actor he's like you know also a singer so maybe he could like learn to do some of the singing although it'd be better if they just use michael's vocals for it but that would all i've got to say that would be my dream casting yeah just looking at pictures now i think you're spot on there yeah cool and i mean that that would be for like later michael you know if they were doing something from maybe late thriller bad era onwards i think you know if it was that kind of era that they were going to focus on Dream casting would be Rome Flynn. All right. So we're getting towards the end of our news items shortly. Uh, Michael Jackson has been certified as the biggest selling solo artist of all time, uh, as announced very recently by MJ Chart Data. Chartmasters has updated sales from streaming, and Michael Jackson is now officially the biggest selling solo artist of all time. There is still somebody or a group above Michael Jackson in terms of just overall artists, the Beatles still has the number one spot for total units. But Elvis Presley was the top of that list, and now Michael Jackson is is officially the biggest-selling solo artist of all time. Now he's just got to keep going and get to that number one spot overall. <laughs> but, yes, uh, we do now have confirmation that Michael has taken the uh, the throne as the, the biggest-selling solo artist, which is great to see. I won't go over all the total unit numbers, physical and digital sales, but we are talking in, you know, like up to 80 million the figure like that. So for each physical and, and digital single sales. So we're, we're talking huge, huge stats here. So one thing I, I noticed though, that looking at this list is I don't even know about its accuracy because it just doesn't feel right to me. Like all 10 of those spots that I see on the website have, you know, like what we would consider, I guess, white, white artists really. I mean, with the exception of maybe Queen because Freddie... Mercury was a person of color, but yeah, Mike, Michael is the only one. Yeah. Really, 
number two spot and everyone else is like a white rock band, white solo artist. That's it. Mm. Yeah. I would love to see where Whitney Houston and Janet Jackson. Mm. Yeah. I would love to see where they fit in or and even Prince. Mariah. Mariah Carey. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. Like we can celebrate this. Which is great, but then I, I'm not even sure about the accuracy of, of it overall because I don't know anybody in my actual life that uh, goes out and listens to Elvis, Elvis <laughs> Presley a whole lot. So how he got like the total number one spot, like I know there is an older demographic that would for sure, but um, how he in 2021 was recently the number one selling solo artist like that, I don't know. This list is very heavy on the legacy artists. So yeah. Led Zeppelin, Elton John, Rolling Stones, Queen, you know, Elvis Beatles, MJ, Madonna. I would consider her like a legacy artist now. Yeah, very you too, I guess, would be one of the most sort of well, I suppose they're around the same era as MJ and Madonna. Mm. But yeah, it's a very legacy sort of artist heavy list so i guess in that regard they've got time up their sleeve that they've had time to rack up these insanely huge numbers yeah yeah because it is blending in physical sales with streaming sales yes so if it would be a very different chart if you were just looking at streaming i don't think michael would even be in the top 20 probably but yeah because it's their own physical sale legacy built into it as well. I can kind of yeah, say that. Yeah. So I, I guess my question too, under other LP sales, does that include, it probably doesn't, but does that include Jackson 5 material, the Jackson's material? Is it just purely, actually, does it include his Motown solo material? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I reckon it would include the Motown solo stuff, but I don't think it would include the Jackson's and J5 stuff. Okay. That's my impression from this sort of list. Which is problematic in general, isn't it? Because that's such an important part of his legacy. Exactly. And that's where, you know, mm. it, when people talk about it, they try to separate. I don't separate it. He's, you know, his first single was in 1969. And, yeah. and that's where I usually start. I don't typically separate, you know, out the Jackson 5 and the Jackson material. It's all one and the same for me. Yeah. 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 And that goes for people the reverse. Like, so if you have, um, like, if we were discussing John Lennon's legacy, we would take into account the Beatles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just would right. because he was, you know, such an important right. songwriter in that group. It's the same for Michael Jackson. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the news stories with a few, like like the old days, Jam, and a few Jackson family news stories. We'll mm -hmm. go through these quickly. But they're very good news and very exciting. Tito Jackson has dropped a new single. It is called Love One Another. The album that is coming off is going to be called Under Your Spell. So the single is out now. The album will be released August 6th. And it is like a bit of a dream come true. I think we spoke to Tito about this, Jamin. And then I think we even spoke to Tarrell and TJ. TJ about the same thing, saying get your dad to do like an acoustic-y, bluesy sort of album. I think that our wishes come true because this song fits the bill and it is really good. This is like really bluesy, really 
just it's not like a pop produced sort of song it's definitely more instrumental acoustic sort of sound and it suits tito and his voice just perfectly it's a really good song i love it and i look forward to the album yeah any comments guys just just love it it's really good it is pretty polished i would say still like i could go with even more raw um but uh, we'll see what's on the album uh it's got stevie wonder on harmonica and really really great song and i just i've been spinning it a lot lately and tito it's a very underrated artist in general actually hugely hugely He's, underrated yeah and, and i hope one day i get to see him live like i've seen him perform as a part of the jacksons but i know elise has seen him uh do a solo gig and she said it's incredible and so has charlie uh, thompson so uh, i hope i get to see him live as well well and, and i absolutely love it as well i'm a big tito fan i actually saw tito live back in 2006 um Ooh. and i I brought along my Destiny album and I uh, was kind of hoping I would just be a groupie and hang out. And <laughs> he came I, he came right on out after the show and uh, he greeted fans and he signed my Destiny album. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so um, he is the only family member that I've met. I got close to Michael once, uh, but Tito was absolutely uh, a lovely guy. And, and, and he chatted with me for a little bit. And uh, I took a picture with him. And so I am, and I agree with you, he is underrated. There's a, a clip on YouTube of him doing a solo, uh, I think it was the 1975 Mexico tour. Um, it was a bluesy uh, kind of, you know, solo. And I've, I've posted it a couple times on my Facebook and on Twitter. And I just absolutely, I, w- I, I wanted it. You know, I felt like it was always a missed opportunity that he didn't, you know, that Joe or the, the the company did not, you know, pursue that angle with him earlier um, because the solo was raw and you could tell he had, a, you know, it was there. Uh, it was there for the taking. And I'm just so disappointed that it took so long for him to do a solo album. So whatever he puts out, I'm supporting. Yeah, yeah. And we we actually asked him about that, Sean. I think when Q and I spoke to him, we 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 went with a line of questioning that was like finally you're getting your solo stuff down that is awesome but what why now like you're you know why not earlier and his response i think was along the lines of well because his you know kid's mother tragically was murdered like he had to put a lot of his energies into being a, a dad and his story is really interesting and and one that I think has a lot of tragedy in it, but a lot of triumph now that he's finally being able to come out and get this solo music out. Yeah, I'm just really happy for him and I can't wait to get the whole album. Same here. Same here. Next up, Michael's daughter, Paris Jackson, will appear on two episodes of American Horror Stories. It's a spin-off of American Horror Story. The creators, Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk, have built a 16-episode series that will premiere weekly on Hulu, covering a different horror tale with each episode. The first two episodes of the series dropped in early hours of July 15, and Paris has joined the growing cast list. Paris plays Maya, in the American Horror Stories, appearing in the first two episodes of the series. Uh, They are titled Rubber Woman, Part 1 and Part 2. Episode 1 welcomes house flippers Michael, played by the incredible actor Matt Bomer, 
and Troy Gavin Creel, along with their daughter Scarlett, played by Sierra McCormack, to the LA murder house from season one of American Horror Story. Maya is Scarlett's classmate and potential love interest who ventures into the haunted house to explore it with Scarlett. I won't be watching this because I am way too scared <laughs> of horror stuff. The The limit of my scary movie watching is the occasional slasher pick, like the new Fear Street series on Netflix, the babysitter films, the Scream <laughs> uh, series of films, and like maybe I would push it to the newer Halloween films because I've seen the older ones, but not scary horror stuff. I won't be watching this, but I think it's awesome that Paris has been cast in this role. I'm a huge horror fan, so I'm going to put this on my watch list, and I'm happy for Paris. You know, obviously, we want the best for Michael's kids, and, you know, it seems like she's happy now, so I'm going to be watching. Yeah, me me too. I'm going to check this one out. I love horror movies and shows as well, big time. In fact, I was watching a great Australian horror movie, Wolf Creek, last night. Uh, so <laughs> I can't wait to, to check this one out. And we know that Michael had an absolute love of film and one of his dreams was to get into filmmaking. So I can only imagine how happy and proud he would be right now if he was here, of his daughter uh, becoming an actress and having success in that way. I can see him watching it with popcorn and, <laughs> and just loving it. So. You boys are so brave. You'll have to fill me in on how it goes for Paris in those episodes. Probably probably not going to end well for her. A lot of people die in these things. Yeah, hopefully she survives or has a spectacular death scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Um, and I think wrapping up the news, John Cameron's latest episode on his podcast series, JC's Musicology. So the latest episode is Janet Jackson, 1996 to 1998. Uh, and it is the Velvet Rope era, one of Janet's best albums oh, and yeah. eras and tours, which sadly I didn't get to see that tour, but I saw pretty much either side of it. Um, yeah, it's an amazing episode. And again, like all of John Cameron's podcast episodes, not to be missed Jamin, I'm sure you're a huge fan of this episode as well. Massively. It's, it's, I think, his best one, to be honest. It's really technically spectacular. It's building in that music from the multi-tracks, but layering it with uh, interviews with Janet and collaborators, breaking down in just crazy detail the the mechanics of the song and, and how they were building it. It's got demos in there, demo vocals. Uh, it's just if you want a masterclass, if you want an incredible documentary exploring this album, you've got to get it. It's an album that's like more personal and raw than I think any other Janet Jackson album. She really put herself there uh, on the line for people to see. And it's probably got my favorite Janet Jackson song on it or a candidate for my favorite song, at least after the Control and Rhythm Nation eras. And that's got till it's gone. Uh, and for me, the, the section of the episode that explores Got Till It's Gone is just the highlight. It's, you know, it has got Jimmy Jam explaining how he composed all the instrumental aspects, who he was inspired by. He Then it has, you know, he's talking about how Janet was doing early vocals and what the vocal, the, the lyrics were about until she changed it up to be what it became. And it's got interviews with collaborators like Q-Tip and uh, you've just, it's just brilliant. 
I love how he brings in the voices of the collaborators because I think with Janet and Michael, often what gets lost is the creative artistic stories of the people doing the music uh, because they were people, I mean, they had a lot of great ideas on their own, but they were people that brought in others to show their own talents. And to hear from them in these documentaries is just brilliant. Uh, it's one hour and 20 minutes long, and that's exactly how I how long I think John Cameron's things should be. Some of his earlier episodes have been shorter, and I think the history era one was quite a bit shorter than that from memory. And my only criticism of John Cameron's stuff is that I want it to be way longer because I just can't get enough of it. So this is exactly, yeah, where I think it should be, that kind of one-plus-hour level of material, and it's it's excellent. So if you haven't heard it, go and listen to it. Sean, do you have any comments on that? It, it, it's funny you say that, you know, the Velvet Rope is, is my favorite album and it has my favorite song, not necessarily her best, but my personal favorite song. And that's you. Mm. I absolutely love that song. And what, it, it's one of those songs when I get on it, I can play it for like an hour straight. Um, it's just hard. It's just you're right. She puts herself right out there. You know, you, you're wondering who is she actually talking about in that song. And so it's just I was never expecting when I bought that album that, you know, it took a while for for me to really appreciate it. But once I did, uh, it quickly became my number one Janet album. So I'm looking forward to listening to that one and, and, and really, you know, understanding, you know, how what what went into uh, the making of that, that 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 album. Have you had a chance to see Janet live? I, I've seen her live. I've seen her. Uh, it would have been the Rhythm Nation tour. I actually had second row seats. Um, so I got to see Janet up close and personal. Wow. <sighs> yes. Um, and that was the show. She started the show with the, um, the video for All Right. Um, she showed that on the screen before. And, I mean, it was a phenomenal show. Um, the Jacksons, period put on a good show you know from the brothers to michael to janet it was just i was blown away yeah q did you get a chance to hear the episode yet oh yeah yeah i heard that like way back when because it, it was a little while ago that this came yes. this episode dropped i heard it like probably that same week whenever it's like a, a jackson's family podcast episode release that like bumps up to the top of my podcast queue for my commute to and from work so yeah when, when you were like John Cameron's new episode. I was like, what? He's got a new episode? When, when <laughs> and then I was like, oh, hang on. No, I already heard this when this came out. And yeah, Velvet Rope, a masterpiece of an album. For uh, like for me, even, you know, the song Free Zone, that was a huge thing for me to hear an artist singing about like, you know, equality and uh, like same-sex attraction and stuff like that. That was a huge reaffirming moment for me which i was really appreciative of but the album itself is spectacular and this podcast episode really lifts that curtain and takes you basically into the studio and the creation of it and well done jc and i know jamin that john is a huge inspiration for your podcasts and your what you produce and what you guys put out still he, he does set the standard, so he does amazing work and he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, really great guy. Okay, that covers all the news for episode 134 of the MJ Cast, and we are now going to dig into the main discussion topic, which is all about Sean Shackelford's fan story. We love having 
listeners on the show sometimes to talk about, you know, their whole story. And Sean's story is a really, really interesting one to me because he is somebody that really has been a fan for a long time. And a lot of the fans I talk to may have only become a fan during Michael Jackson's solo years or even later. I mean, I became a fan during the Invincible era. Q, you became a fan during the Dangerous era. And there's a lot of listeners who became fans after Michael passed away. And Sean, you've been a fan a lot longer than that and even had the privilege of seeing the Jacksons live during their prime in the tour that I think, in my personal opinion, was the highlight of their careers, which was the Triumph Tour. Very excited, Sean, to talk to you about your fan story. So, Sean, take Q and I back in time to those early memories of the Jacksons. So, um, I, I, I'll admit I'm 49 years old. And so I've been a fan as long as I can remember. So that's taking me back to about 1975, 1976. I know we had the, um, the looking through the windows album. We had the get it together album. And I played, I, I know I played the looking through the windows album nonstop. Um, and we had a little guitar. And so I have an older brother. I would make him be Jermaine and I would be Michael. And it was, it, it was just, I, I've never known a time where I, where Michael was not in my life and I was not a fan. You know, you didn't get the opportunity to see them on TV often. So when they were on TV, you know, you, it was must see TV. It was, you know, I was right there in front of the TV. And so I have, like I said, I've been a fan for a long time. And when I was you know, able to start asking my parents for money to buy their records, I, I would always get their records. Um, now, I really was really in the gamble and huff years uh, with Enjoy Yourself and, you know, those albums that I really just, you know, I became a, a mega fan. And so, yes, I did see the Triumph Tour, but there is a little backstory to that. So my parents, they would, the Jacksons came on the, it was the second leg of the Destiny Tour. So it was right after Off the Wall came out. And my parents had, you know, promised, they knew how much, you know, I love Michael. Um, and I, they liked, they liked the family as well. And so they had promised to take us to that show. And so it was in the days where you had to actually physically go to the box office and buy the tickets. And so my parents waited a little bit too late. And when we got there, um, the only seats that were available were behind the stage. And so my parents were not going to pay for that. And so I remember crying my eyes out for days, begging, trying to figure out a way. And I'd never forget that show was on a Sunday. And I just remember that whole Sunday. I was just so sad because I wanted to go. I went to bed crying. I was begging. Can we just go down there and just stand around? And so it, it just, you know, it, it, I, I was I was a mess. I was a wreck for weeks after that. And so what ended up happening was they promised to take us to the next show that I wanted to go to. And so the next show that I wanted to go to was Rick James on the Fired Up Tour. Rick James and Prince opening. This would have been in 1980. Wow. So to let you guys know, 1979, I was seven years old, and there was three albums that were on my turntable that entire year. Michael's Off the Wall, Rick James, Busting Out of L7, and Prince's second album. I played those three albums to death um, in 1979. And so when... 
Uh, I saw the commercial for the Rick James Fired Up Tour with Prince opening. I begged and they, okay, sure. <laughs> and so they took us. So now you have to remember, I was, and when this actually went to the show, I was actually eight at the time. When Prince came on and Prince did his typical Prince thing in 1980, uh, it was, it was raunchy. It was, it was a great set. I can just, it was phenomenal. But my father was a little, uh, a little, uh, <laughs> uh, he was fit to be tied um, after that because he did not appreciate seeing a man in bikini shorts playing his guitar, <laughs> sticking his tongue out, uh, <laughs> tonguing his, his keyboard player. Um, and at the end, Prince even put his hand down his bikini. My father was ready to go. <laughs> so I, I I begged said, Daddy, please, please, can we just because I, I really was a big Rick James fan. Please, can we just stay for Rick James? So he agreed. Well, the lights went out, you know, and then the, the lights went out and the smoke went up. And I mean the smoke from everybody in the crowd firing up the marijuana. <laughs> and he had this big he had this big prop, this marijuana come down from the, the ceiling and was right in the middle of the stage. And there was smoke coming out of it. And Rick came out and he was in rare form. I mean, he came out with a joint in his hand. I don't recall him really finishing a song. And he said something to the key. Pull, he, he fired up a, a, a joint. And he I remember him saying, I, and the, there's cops in front of him. And I said, they're one of these. MFers, you know, take it from me. And my father looked at me and I'm like, uh, I know this is not going to end well. And it was just, it was bad. And my dad, we, he said, okay, we're done. I don't think we got to the <gasps> set. Which, and you know what? I was okay with it because I realized as an eight year old, I was probably not supposed to be at this show. <laughs> you were uh, out of your depth. Yeah. Yes. Did yes. your dad not know about Rick James? As a so performer? here's the thing. So here's the thing, you know, back in 1980, there were no videos. So we just, you know, you saw them on American Bandstand, you saw them on Soul Train, you saw them on these different shows. And, on their best behavior. <laughs> right, very sanitized. So yeah. you, you didn't really know that. And so, and then if you really go back and listen to those lyrics, those lyrics are just as bad as the lyrics today. They were just, mm -hmm. they, they, they had a way of writing it where you didn't realize what they were talking about. And so, you know, my dad, he was a big Otis Redding, Johnny Taylor, Tyrone Davis, those kind. He was a fan of that music. So he didn't really get into, he didn't listen to the music that much. So he was not happy. And so when the Jacksons came around for the Triumph Tour, I think he was, he was very happy to take us to see that one because he kind of knew that that would not go the way of Rick James and Prince. And so he made sure he got the tickets early. We had great seats. Um, it was in August of 81. And I can just tell you, when I go back and think about that time, I love Michael so much. I love the brothers so much. And to actually know that I was going to be in the same building with them, I think I was just on pins and needles the entire week. And so when I finally got there, I remember Stacey Ladisaw was the opening act. And so I was just, you know, I, I liked her at the time. I thought she was cute and she had some great songs. And, you know, I, I, okay, Stacey, you can get off the stage now because I'm ready <laughs> to see the brothers. And so what really stands out to me 
about that show. That's why I feel like it needs to be when they finally release it, it needs to be a theatrical release because the lights went out, you know, the crowd's going crazy. Then all all you see is a screen come down. Like, okay, what what is what's going on here? I mean, I'm not I'm not here to watch them on the screen. I want to see them. But then the screen comes down and then you see the beginning of the Can You Feel It video. And, you know, at the beginning, that video says, in the beginning. And it was just that booming voice throughout. And you just sat back and you were in awe. Like, what is this? Because you didn't you didn't have videos. You didn't see that. And so to see them up on the screen in that video, the way they were portrayed, Questlove said it in um, one of his uh, podcasts a couple weeks ago when he did the Jacksons. You know, they were superheroes to us. And in that moment, the Jacksons became my superheroes. And so when that, to sit there and watch that and have that boom right out at you and see those visuals, uh, it, it was just, I was in awe. I'm like, okay, I could go home now. But then the screen went up, Randy comes out, which was a feat in and of itself because just the year prior, Randy was in that big accident in his car. And there was questions of whether he'll walk again but then randy comes out he has this torch and he has like this you know this knight in shining armor outfit on and then the brothers come up from the bottom of the stage and they start performing and i'm going to tell you i i was just in awe i my mouth was open i was dancing i was screaming it is by far, and and people I hear I see people debate this all the time, and I, and when I once I say this, and people may may tweet at me about this, I do believe that is Michael's peak vocal performance. People say bad, the bad tour, but I think Michael was at his best. I always feel like Michael was at his best when he's with his brothers, but when I look back at footage of that tour and just to see how loose he was, how carefree he was, how strong his voice was, I mean, it, it was it was no wonder that Thriller happened. It's just it was just an amazing, an amazing tour. And I and I know Jamin, you and I had a conversation about this, but I think when I think back of, to that tour, Randy absolutely stands out to me because of his energy with Michael. Randy was just all over the stage, whether he was on the bongos, whether he was on the piano, uh, whether he's dancing. He was just as energetic as Michael. Not more, but I think he really, and when you see the two of them together, it was just an energy that could not be matched. And so it was always, so that's the, what was the one thing when you saw Mike, and I saw Mike on the bad tour, it, that was always missing from his performance, just that interaction with Randy on stage. And Randy was a true, it was, he was a revelation for me just to see how talented he was or he is and just how he really did fit in with the brothers after Jermaine left. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like when, when I look at Michael Jackson's later tours, I mean, especially the nineties, they seem, you know, they're big productions. There's a lot of dance numbers. There's a lot of things going on, tanks rolling on stage, all of that. But yeah. really it's quite <laughs> sterile in a way compared to how organic and natural all of that late seventies, early eighties stuff is. And, you know, there's a, there's a horn section, there's uh, Randy on piano. It's just, yes. it's all real and authentic and it's 
it's happening right there. And that's what I think fans are craving for these days is that the authenticity. And I can't wait for some of that stuff to come out. You're right. The horn section, the Jackson's horn, the, the horn section on all of their albums are just phenomenal. Um, and just to see it, it was a huge, you know, you're right. The later shows, Michael's later shows, had a lot of theatrics. This one, it was just the power of Michael, the brothers, and the band. And it was just, they didn't need all the other stuff. Now, they did have some theatrics, you know, at the very beginning with Randy. Um, they did something in the middle with um, Heartbreak Hotel. Um, and then, obviously, the segue from working day and night into uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. But it was, they were just a powerhouse best concert i've ever seen in my life by far and i've seen michael three times i saw the victory tour victory tour was good uh because you had jermaine there and so that really kind of completed it but jackie wasn't performing with him on the on that tour so it was kind of missing something so the the triumph tour is just by far his strongest and i i'll say this also if we, if Michael stopped performing right then and there, you know, he was already a Hall of Fame famer. He's already a legend. And I think anything after, after that, you know, we, sh- we, we should expect, we should have expected it, but it's really a bonus because he, he was just, I wouldn't have been disappointed. Let's put it that way. I would not have been disappointed because he was just at his best on that tour. Hmm. Q, do you have anything to, to ask there? I've got lots of things, but I, I want to hand over to you if you want. Oh, my God. I'm like just going along with the journey. I think <laughs> I want to know your dad's reaction. So, like, no. <laughs> like the they, difference you know, between the two shows and, you know, how did he react after all the theatrics and then the, the show seeing the Jacksons? I'm really curious. So we were a Jackson family. So we just – we they loved them. And so it was not – he we loved the show and you know i remember when they released the live album you know i I begged for that when they got me that for christmas and so no my mother really liked the things i do for you that was her song or that is her song so that was one she always wanted me to play but they you know we thoroughly loved the show they he thoroughly loved the show there was no complaints from him as opposed to the prince and rick james show (laughs) (laughs) But I always tell people, and I've mentioned it to you guys, I always think that period between 75 and 81 is just a, I hate to call it the lost Jackson era, but there's never a lot of focus on that area. So I'm glad you mentioned at the beginning where, you know, where fans, you know, when they started becoming fans, because I know there's a lot of us who were fans back then and, and we really crave that material, the gambling huff material. And, you know, we, we'd love, like, I remember their variety show and that was, I mean, the Jacksons on TV, you know, every week in the summertime, you know, that was a thing. And, and so I never missed an episode and it was just, I was captivated just seeing them. And then when it ended in 77, you know, we never, they never show reruns of it. So you never, ever saw it again until I was in college. I went to the university of Michigan. And I was I worked in a record store. So shout out to Michigan Warehouse Records in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I worked in a record store. So I would always get these trade magazines. And so I found one where someone was selling, you know, Michael videos and Jackson videos. And I was able to find um, those TV show episodes. Um, and I know there's a couple of the guys on campus, which was rare in 1992 and 93. 
during the Pearl Jam, the grunge, you know, West Coast hip hop era to find true Michael Jackson fans. I remember finding a couple of guys, Derek Kirkwood and Anwar Hankerson. Those are my buddies, my Jackson fan buddies uh, from Michigan. And um, we would, you know, I they invite them over to the house and we would watch those old TV shows and just, you know, just remember how much we loved the Jacksons. And so it was just, that's a period where you get to hear Michael in a way that you've never really heard him, but you can, you can hear the growth. So if you go back to that first Gamble and Huff album, I mean, there are songs on that album that are just phenomenal. Like from, for instance, my favorite on that album is Style of Life. Mm. Just the way Michael really, just the way he sings that song, uh, and that's a that's a true Gamble and Huff song too. Like you can hear that's that the OJ's that Teddy Pendergrass that that beat is that that's a true Gamble and Huff beat. And and Michael on top of it and the way he sings that song, you never really you can see the you see you know he never really gets back to that, but you can see how he incorporates elements of that in in later work. Uh, even if you go to Find Me a Girl on um, going places, you know, just at the end, we said, when I find her, what you going to do? I'm going to be good to her. You don't hear that again until lady in my life. You know, there's like things like that you pick up on like, Oh, that's where he got it from. And you go back and you hear and you start making the connections. Yeah. And so those are, you know, you know, yeah. And I've asked, and I've actually, uh, Kenny Gamble does a, um, a pot, not, he does a Facebook live. He used to do a Facebook live. And I think I've asked him a couple times, you know, are there any material, you know, uh, extra material from that time? And I, I think the response that I've gotten, I don't know if I've gotten it from him or others that, that all of that material was lost in a fire. Mm-hmm. And so if there was that material to begin with. So, um, I just, I mean, those are just, that's just material. That's just, those are performances that you just don't, you know, you, you, you can hear his growth. You hear where he was going with things. You hear how he picked up on things and how he, you know, eventually brought them back later on. And sorry for singing. I just, when I get into it, I just, you know. <laughs> no, no, we love it. We love the geeking out. Trust me. I mean, first of all, I want to say that fans today that have grown up in the YouTube era do not understand the struggle of trying to track down other MJ fans to find VHS material. Like that is a thing that when it happened, it was like when you found that tape, it was like, you know, the heavens open up. You got, you finally, (laughs) you know, people don't understand that. But also I want to say, you just made me think about this whole Gamble and Huff era and the two albums that they did with the Jacksons, the the Jacksons self-titled, album and then going places i mean these are great albums to me these are like five star albums and i can't help but think that there must have been some frustration amongst the jackson's camp at the time around i mean these these albums did reasonably well they kind of peaked at you know uh going places peaked at 63 on the billboard 200 these albums didn't have the success at all that the later stuff would have especially when the jacksons started producing their own material but nonetheless they are still incredible albums the song the title song going places itself is so funky um and i i I just can't help but think that the Jacksons were wondering at that point, why are we not having the same level of success that we did when we were the Jackson 5? What I don't know. Like, I guess what I'm asking is why 
Why do you think the Gamble and Huff stuff didn't break through as much as their their self-produced stuff did with Destiny onwards? You know, that's a really good question, and 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 I would love to hear. I don't think I've ever really thought uh, watched an interview with Gamble and Huff where they really talk about this. But when I listen to those albums, you really get the sense that they were themselves were trying to figure out what to do with the Jacksons, especially on that first album, uh, the self-titled album, because you have some really strong songs. Um, you know, show you the way to go. You know, blues away. Those are some great songs. But then, you know, you just then they start then they throw in strength of a man where it just kind of seems like they're trying to force the whole message song on them where it doesn't really necessarily flow as well. So I, I really do think and I would love to hear their take on it. And I think Going Places is a more consistent album. Mm. And so I, I don't know if that's just people were still adjusting to the fact that they were not on Motown and didn't have that traditional Motown sound. Um, you know, just adjusting to the fact Jermaine's not in the group anymore. But I will tell you this, of the songs that get played a lot on black radio, Show You the Way to Go and Good Times are the probably the, the two most played songs. So whereas they didn't have the set success in terms of sales, I will tell you Good Times and Show You the Way to Go, I hear that played on the radio all the time now you and you won't you don't necessarily hear material from other than blaming on the boogie you hear blaming on the boogie but you won't hear material from destiny and triumph played today as much as you hear you know show you the way to go and good times so that's interesting in and of itself yeah and i think i just think good times is such an underrated song and such an underrated performance by michael it just gets you know overlooked but i think that was the probably the best Gamble and Huff produced Jackson song, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree that these albums, like the Gamble and Huff ones and then the Jackson's self-produced albums, Destiny and Triumph, like they, to me, artistically, they're a peak for Michael's career in a way with in, in terms of using real organic instruments and jamming with his brothers and growing these songs. And it must have been such a feeling for them of frustration that some of these albums weren't going to the level that they had achieved before as the Jackson 5 and i don't i can't help but wonder whether that feeling if they did in fact have it then was what spurred michael on to achieve what he did with off the wall and even thriller well, he talked about, Michael talked a lot about learning how to structure a song from Gamblin' Huff. Mm. And so I think, you know, I, I think he really did take a lot from that period. And I think that allowed them to get to the point where they felt comfortable with Destiny. And so that's why I think Destiny sounds so good. And so it, just, it sounds raw. And then when you get to Triumph, Triumph is, is definitely more polished. I always call Triumph the, uh, an extension of Off the Wall because it does have that polished sound to it. Whereas, you know, Destiny, you could tell they were just, they were cutting their teeth, they were trying it for the first time, and they happened to nail it um, on that first try. But I think it's because they they, they really did study Gamble and Huff. Mm. And I think where they didn't, again, they didn't have that success in terms of sales. It was a success in terms of what they learned from those two. I think also wasn't the music industry and the sound of the era really trying to find its place. Like there was a lot happening at the time. Like disco was sort of, I guess, starting out or partway through the whole disco era. And I guess 
people were really exploring new sounds and and genres in a way like where where am I going to fit now as an artist so I guess that probably impacted record sales uh, a bit as well and then you also had Michael's changing voice they're changing style they're changing labels so there was I think a lot went into that but I think it all benefited them going through that rough patch uh, and then coming out on the other side with destiny. And we use rough patch as a very loose term. Like, yeah, I mean, yes. That was still I yes. Not, yeah. It was amazing. Like, yeah, I no, was no, just... I, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. That is, that's my favorite period. Um, but just in terms of, I think when you look at it, like, okay, they hit a lo- they hit a lull right there um, in terms of sales and success that they had before. But you're right. That's, that's, that's not to mean that, that I'm not saying that the music was not good because I love those two albums. Mm, absolutely. Those are five star albums. Yeah. Like even now, like I've got that's what you get and shake your body and even a bit later, like the hurt. I've oh no, not the hurt, sorry, the weight. I've got those tracks added into like a sort of disco playlist of mine, as well as hello, of course, off the wall songs. Mm-hmm. Heaps like five or six, six of those, I think, on my playlist for disco music. And this they're just brilliant. Like when they come on with all the other disco stuff around it, which is some of the older stuff and then more recent disco stuff that because there's been a bit of a resurgence in that sound in the last couple of years like those songs are just magic just magic so you you happen to mention what, probably my favorite I, I will call this the probably the most important song in the jackson <gasps> catalog which one that is, that is that's what you get for being polite oh, isn't it just perfect I, and oh. I'm going to tell you, I've, I've, I've put this on Twitter and I've said this. I could write an essay. <laughs> and Write the essay. We'll read it. <laughs> and honestly, if they do a biopic, this is one of those the biopics where, you know, they need to start with that song and then go back and then move on and then, you know, work their way back up. I just think that song, the way that Michael sings it, what he's singing about, he... he, he He's he's telling us. He told us, and I'm not into saying that Michael, you know, you know, he he was like Nostradamus or how you ever pronounce it, that he was, you know, predicting his life. But he really did. And if you go back and listen to it, he told us about his life and how his life would, what what would become of his life. Mm. You know, something's deep inside of him, eating up the pride in him that yeah. makes him buy things for the girls. And it's just like you you hear it. And it was almost like Michael was saying, all right, this was this was my life. This is my was my life up until this point. And so now what this song does is it's slamming the door on little Michael and then it's opening the door to the adult Michael. And so he told us how he got to this point and what's going to happen after. And so that is the one song that when I listen to it, it truly brings me to tears because I hear what he's saying. I, I know what his life was like at the time, and I know what became of his life. And it's just he laid it out. He told us who he was. He told us what was going to happen to him. And if we had just listened, you know, at the time, we would have, you know, we would have realized that and understood him more. But I think that is just even at the end when he's just he's he's almost like he's pleading Jack Steele. Mm-hmm. often cries because there is no love and just the way he says that often cries because there is no love it's just like that's who he was oh man 
Goosebump moments right now. I can go on and on and on for that one. For I the next four hours, we're going to be discussing this song. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an essay. That's an essay if you really broke it down. I think I've gotten into some discussions with other people who kind of agree that that, to me, is a very important song. I think it's a, it comes at an important time in his career and is fittingly the last song on Destiny. And the next thing you hear from Michael is Off the Wall. And so it is just, I always say, that, that, that song just slammed the door on that little Michael phase. And then it opened the door to the adult Michael. I think the placement of that song and then, yes, leading into Off the Wall, I think that was absolutely intentional. 100%. Yep. Yep. Do you think, Sean, that it's been difficult for some of the siblings, like Michael's brothers and sisters, to try and fight for their own name to get out there amidst Michael and Janet's like just astronomical success? You know, um, I've often said that, you know, the, the family is very talented and Jermaine has some phenomenal albums. If you go back and just, he, and obviously he has, I think he has the most albums, solo albums of all of the siblings. Even more and, than LaToya? Well, you know what? Let me take that back. You're right. I think LaToya may <laughs> have him beat. I have to yeah. go back and double check. But some of those Jermaine albums right after he left uh, Motown are just great records. And so I think he really did struggle a little bit in terms of, you know, trying to get his footing. But I mean, if you go back and listen to that Frontiers album, uh, it's a great record. It is. I mean, it actually it has one of my favorite Jermaine songs in uh, Castles of Sand. I mean, that is that is top five Jackson material right there for me. I've started listing, you know, what's my favorite Jackson song? Castles of Sand is is my number one Jermaine performance. Um, but he just has some great records. And unfortunately, he did get shadowed, overshadowed by Michael. But what I liked about Jermaine is that he just kept going. He just kept putting out records. And he, he didn't really stray from that formula. Um, and so I was glad when he had the success. But let's get serious. And so I, I think the one brother that really I'm just... I'm, I don't want to use the word disappointed, but I just wanted so much more from him. And that's just Randy. Randy had so much potential and we just didn't get enough material out of Randy. I even like the song from 1978, How Can I Be Sure? I think that's a great song. I think Randy's a, 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 a decent uh, vocalist. And it was just, it's just so disappointing that we just didn't get more material from him because I think he had a lot. Or... You know, I would have loved to see him collaborate with Michael a little bit more. So uh, I think it was definitely hard, but I think I, I, I think Jermaine was the one who I think, you know, he just he has some great material. And I think he he does get a lot of love now from fans. Uh, I know a lot of fans who, you know, we have great conversations, you know, you know, about those Jermaine albums. And so I think it's just unfortunate that, you know, Michael just took off the way that he did. But I think, you know, it's always time to to rediscover those albums um, and make sure that you know people understand how great they are. Okay, we're going to do this one rapid fire. So I'm going to ask you what your favorite Jackson stuff is, and you got to say which one and why as well. All, All right. right. So let's go. What's your favorite Jackson's album and why? Destiny. Just the time that it came out, I was such a Jackson's fan. I love that album, start to finish. It's not a bad song on the album. Favorite Jackson's song and why? Well, you've kind of already said that, I think. 
I've already said that's what you get for being polite. Um, it's just an important song for so many reasons. Okay, video? Jackson's. Um, I'm going to have to go with uh, Can You Feel It? Reason? Reason, because when I saw it, and I think I mentioned this earlier in the show, I was not a fan of that song when I listened to the album, but I became a fan because I had that visual, and seeing it in concert like that just blew me away. And favorite Jackson's tour and why? Triumph Tour, first time seeing the brothers. Um, I think Michael was at his peak vocally. The brothers were, uh, they were just tight. The band was tight. Uh, it was just a big performance, and um, it was just a show like no other. Okay, and favorite, uh, a bit of a, a different question, but favorite Jackson Brothers look and why? I am a fan of the, again, the 78 Afros. Mm. Anything <laughs> that 77, 78 look, which I think always get overlooked in terms of when people put these collages of Michael through throughout the years, they always miss that. So I just I, like if you open up the gatefold for Destiny, that's it for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The photo shoot where Michael's wearing the red tartan shirt and the big afro, that is um I don't know what photo yes. shoot that was. Is that in the Destiny booklet? But that is great. Yes. Yes, and he has like the the uh scarf, white scarf around his neck. Yeah. That's good. Yes. That's cool. Q. All right, Sean. <laughs> Here we go. Your yes. favorite MJ solo album and this can be right from motown right through to adult uh, yeah these are tough it will, <laughs> it will have to be so i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little bit here it okay. will have to be off the wall mm-hmm. but i'm gonna say follow closely by thriller and dangerous and then history and it's not to slight the motown solo work because i absolutely adore music in me um, yeah, yeah. love that album that yeah. song up again up again is what my favorite solo michael song one of my favorites so but yeah off the wall i think we might have the same ranking i, th- I put <laughs> a ranking out the other day on twitter and i think we got to say what man i cop some heat for that let me tell you <laughs> all right favorite mj solo song I am going to go with Working Day and Night. Ooh, nice. yeah. That one performed live got better each time. Yeah. Like a fine one. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yes. What about video? Uh, it would have to be, again, I'm going to cheat on this one. It would have to be Thriller, followed very closely by Smooth Criminal and Remember the Time. Excellent. And what about tour for you it would be it would be the bad that would be that was the only solo tour that i saw and i actually agree with charles thompson where anything after that it was just you know there's you know it was not as good as the other as the bad tour so bad tour and i actually saw the bad tour palace of auburn hills great great show and then look your favorite mj style and look solo look um it it would have to be that look between because this is still the solo period but it's that look between off the wall and thriller like right right in there with that that triumph look right there right there 
cool. I had Michael Jackson stuff all over my walls from that period. Right oh, there. man, vintage. So, Sean, why is it that you think some MJ fam, some Michael fans focus all in on the adult solo stuff? Uh, well, obviously, I think it's because it was where he, you know, hit his, I call it his second peak. And his second peak in his career was the biggest peak of any entertainer's career. And I think you got a lot of fans who are younger. And so that's what, you know, that's what they know. And so that's why, I, you know, I... I was listening to you guys. You know, was it not the not the last show? Show before last, where Charles Thompson was on. You guys were talking about, you know, you know, do you still listen to Michael's music? And he and he made a comment. I'm and, and Charles, I'm not trying to misquote you. I think you said something to the effect of, you know, you don't really uh, listen to the Motown stuff. Where you know, I think that is just that's a gold mine of material. And I think there are certain segments of the fans who really. You know, we really love that time. We love that period, but we just get overshadowed by some of the younger fans um, and the, those who came after Thriller. But you know, the, that Motown stuff is just—I mean, just to hear Michael's development from 1969 with Bobby Taylor working with him. I know Bobby Taylor talked about how he really was trying to break Michael of this habit of saying "ooh" all the time, like that that James Brown kind of style, and trying to break him. And then if you go back and listen to some of those rare cuts, like "A Fool for You," um, compare "A Fool for You" to "Who's Loving You," and you can see, you know, you can see the development in just a short amount of time that you know Bobby was able to help and develop his style. And so just to kind of hear it. You know, progress even through his, you know, puberty where he starts, his voice starts to change. You know, this just a gold mine worth of material that when you go back and listen to it, I'm constantly rediscovering things um, as I hear it. So, you know, I think people just they tend to want to focus on, you know, when Michael was like this mega, mega star as opposed to really digging back, digging into when he was a huge star back in the 70s as well. Yeah, like the evolution and the roots, where he came from. Correct. Absolutely. And there's so much of it. I think that's daunting for people as well, that the amount of material from those early years right through to, yeah, to, to like off the wall, the amount of material is probably maybe scaring some people off. I don't know. Well, and then the people don't realize that in the 70s, I believe there was an album. There was an album released on on the Jackson every year from 1969 until 82. And so you had about a 14-year period where there's just Jackson material every single year. And so, yes, it, it it can be very daunting and you can, you know, just rely on the hits as opposed to really digging in and listening to Darlin' Deer and listening to Michael, you know, and James Jamerson, how they sound together or, you know, going and listening to the song To Know off of Looking Through the Windows and listening to how they kind of put a little Al Green spin on Michael uh, and the brothers. So it's just, you know, those are things that you really pick up on when you go back and listen to it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to ask, you saw the Triumph Tour. What other occasions were you able to see um, either the Jacksons and then you said you saw Michael on the Bad Tour, but also earlier in the episode you dropped that you sort of saw Michael close up once. Like you did meet Tito and got, you know, your Destiny album autographed and you mentioned that you did 
get close to Michael once. So can I hear those stories, please? Absolutely. So Michael came, it, this would have been the late 90s. I want to say this was either 97 or 98. He partnered up with Don Barton. Don Barton was from Detroit. And oh, the casino the thing. Casinos, yeah. Yes, he was going to build a casino in Detroit. So they proposed. So this was when we have casinos now in Detroit. And so this was when they were all making their pitches. And so Don Barton partnered with Michael. And so he brought Michael to uh, it's a venue called, it was called Shane Park at the time. It's now been uh, renamed the Aretha Franklin Amphitheater. And so he brought Michael there and it were free tickets. And I'm telling you, it was sold out. I went down there and got tickets and we sat around and waited and waited just for Michael to come and address the crowd and leave. And that was it. There was no performance. There was nothing other than Michael coming and saying hello to the fans and why he's partnering with Don Barden and why, you know, he feels like they should, there should be a casino here. Don Barden and Michael and him should be awarded the casino in Detroit. And that was it. I think he stayed on stage for five minutes and he left. Um, <laughs> and, we all dispersed. And so I was actually down there and met a couple guys. And so we decided to kind of hang around to see if we could figure out where Michael was staying. And so he was staying um, in downtown Detroit, the Renaissance Center. So we hung around downstairs for a while. Somehow we figured out what floor he was on. And so uh, we just, we, I think we had to sneak to get onto the elevator, but we ended up getting onto the elevator and we got up to the floor. And so when the elevator opened, this is a true story, elevator opened, there's this guy, there's this huge security guard sitting in a chair and he gets up and he stands in the doorway <laughs> thinking, okay, okay, we're not getting past this, <laughs> this guy. But then there's Don Barden and his wife there as well and so then they get on and then we was like and we just said you know hey how are you guys doing so good good and i said well you know we were just hoping that we can meet michael and he said well he, he did a side like that i'm thinking okay there's a chance he said well michael just went to bed he just laid down and so you know unfortunately you guys not gonna be able to make it happen I'm like oh it's like he's right down the hall you could just escort <laughs> us right down the hall <laughs> um and so he was Don Barton was a really nice guy. Uh, he talked to us all the way down um, the elevator. And so after that, we just gave up. But we, we made a shot and we, we gave it a shot and we were right, right there. You know, had we probably been there maybe 10 minutes earlier, we may have been able to talk to the security guard, talk him into, you know, letting us hang out up there. But it didn't happen. So I got that close. That's a, cool That's a very cool story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine the elevator doors opening and this mountain of a security man and you'd be like, yes. oh, okay. yes, this is not, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but then Don, have Don Bard standing right there. I'm like, okay, maybe we can ask him. And yeah, you know, he was nice enough, but we, we didn't, it didn't, it didn't, we didn't work for us that night. Still exciting. Yes. Yes. All right. And, and what were the tours that you've seen all up? So I've seen the Triumph Tour, uh, the Victory Tour, uh, and the Bad Tour. Um, wow. That's, that's what a, ridiculous. What a roster right there, my God. <laughs> yes, yes. And the Victory Tour was everything that you've heard it, it, it to be. It was, it was my, I remember my cousin and I, we were, my cousin Amy and I were big fans. So we went to that one together. Our families went together. And uh, just, just being in that, at that show with her, was exciting but it was just it wasn't as as good as the the triumph tour but it was it was everything that you know 
I thought it would be. And, you know, I, I'm glad I had that experience. So why was it not as good? So, again, I, I think part of it was with Jackie not being there. To me, that was huge for me. I just he he really him and him, Marlon, you know, there was a chemistry between the two of them mm-hmm. that once Marlon was on his own, it's just it was just not there. And and, and I liked having Jermaine there as well. But it just it just didn't have the raw feeling of the Triumph Tour. You know, obviously you had the, the, the thriller material, but it just didn't. It, 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 when I think back on those tours, and I think, you know, had I not seen the Triumph Tour, I would definitely say, you know, the Victory. If I had gone to the Destiny Tour and then skipped Triumph and went to Victory, then I would definitely say Victory. But there was just an, an electric atmosphere around Triumph that, and it probably was because it was my first time seeing them. It just couldn't compare, Victory couldn't compare to Triumph. All right. So I've got a question. There's a few sort of questions I want to ask now. As someone who operates in a school, I hear Michael's name come up sort of all the time in class. I mean, I've got a picture of Michael on my classroom wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> and because uh, I have a history classroom, I've got all of these color images on the front wall of my classroom of individuals that have shaped the world somehow for good or bad, really, just notable figures. Mm-hmm. And Michael's face is right, right there. I weave his art and his story into my history lessons and I I hear some really wild theories coming out from kids about him, you know, like Michael turned himself white, he wanted to be white, all of that kind of stuff. Then you get the the molestation sort of comments get thrown around by kids and I'm and I'm sure that in your career you must have had that happen to you as well in the classroom. And I wanted to know from you is like how do you approach that? What sort of how do you approach those opinions or conversations? Um, in the school setting, actually, I think because they know I love Michael so much, I don't get the negative mm-hmm. now, but before it was just a matter of my, I'm all about, you know, I don't try to, as an educator, I don't try to push, you know, my philosophy or doctrine on any, or any student, but I always try to enlighten them to the point to where they would actually think about it and come to their own conclusions. And so really kind of talking to them on those levels. But the the number one thing I always do is just let's redirect it back to the music. You know, let's redirect it to, you know, why I love him. The kids always ask me to dance like Michael. So every <laughs> once in a while in the cafeteria, I'll do that for them. <laughs> um, and so I've really tried to have fun with it more than anything else. It's so funny because when the pandemic started and we, you know, we went on lockdown, you know, I did a Facebook Live for my families. And so as a part of that, I had my own family in the video with me. And I just ended it with, you know, I said, you guys all know I'm a huge Jackson five fan. I said, so just so you know, I'll always be there. Then I had then my family. We all started, we broke out into I'll be there. Oh, man, um, that's awesome. oh, and that's so we're so all, cute. we're all singing, we're all singing. I'll be there. So it's just, oh. and so that really kind of breaks that whole negative, you know, perception people may have of Michael. Uh, and I, so I started doing Facebook lives throughout the pandemic. So I would wear my Jackson shirts on and, and the parents would point it out. And I would mention, yeah, this would be from the, this is the 1978 logo. And then I would wear another one from the Triumph Air logo. And I would just explain that to them. And so, <laughs> you know, it's, I really try to make it about, you know, I, I allow my, community and my students to know who I am and I just focus it right back on the music and you know and you know it's funny because I've never had that conversation that negative conversation with students lately it's just it doesn't come up the kids like Michael they like the videos and so that's really what they focus on 
He's huge on TikTok, from what I've heard. Like MJ music yeah. and dancing and people dancing to MJ music is like ginormously massive on TikTok. So there was a video last year that came out of a teacher, it's a black teacher with black students. They were doing in the hallway, they were doing a thriller. I don't know if you guys I saw remember. I, I saw it. That was good. Yeah, that was so the, so the interesting tidbit of that, I used to be the principal at that school. Oh, <laughs> you the legacy lives on. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be the principal at that school. I was only the principal there for one year, but it was interesting when that went, you know, because then people who know I love, uh, that I love Michael, they start sending it to me. And I said, yeah, I said, the ironic part is I used to be the principal in that building. Uh, you would have been so <laughs> proud of that school. I was very proud. Yeah. That was uh, a good one. Will somebody just yeah. hurry up and give you the principal of the year award? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I try, I try really hard. It's a fun, a fun job and I hate to, I hate to be leaving it, but you know, it's yeah. time, but um, I enjoy it. Well, now you get to go in and inspire other uh, newer principals. Yes, hopefully. Okay. Now I've got a question for you about Michael's changing appearance over the years and how, how you viewed that, I guess, as a, as a black man yourself. And obviously Michael's appearance started to change long before he gave that famous interview to Oprah where he talked about vitiligo. So I, I guess, um, and I know you're only one man in, in the black community, but how did you personally process that when that was going on? And, and what sort of conversations did you have with other uh, people in the community about it? Well, you know, it, it was difficult. It was difficult to watch. Now, now I will tell you that between thriller and bad, you know, it, you just tended to think there was more makeup than anything else. You didn't think that it was, you know, it was, it would progress to the point where it did. But, you know, that was, you know, that was the time where, you know, Michael was, you know, wasn't viewed as not as popular anymore. Um, you had the rap music, hip hop music starting to take off in the mainstream. And so, you know, there was, I mean, there was a time where Michael just wasn't as popular and he was the butt of a lot of jokes. Now, but I will also say that Michael was the butt of a lot of jokes back in the seventies as well. Mm. And so there were always questions about his sexuality. And I think that was the persistent joke or rumor in the seventies. And that just continued throughout his life. But, you know, as his appearance, especially with the Dangerous album, um, and that's where you began to have those conversations. You just didn't know. And, and that was, that's part of the thing. You'd, I always tell people, you know, had Michael just come right out and said he had vitiligo at the time, we would have understood. But when it happened, yeah, people were, you know, people were saying he wants to be white. You know, his look at his nose, look at his skin. You know, he doesn't. So he took a lot of heat and I had a lot of those conversations with people. Uh, and it was tough. It was tough to try and defend without knowing. And so once he came out and said he had vitiligo, I think my great grandfather had vitiligo and he lived to be well over 100 years old. So I, I saw how, you know, what it looked like up close and personal. And so it made sense. But just during that time, it was really tough. Um, I was starting college right when the when when the Dangerous album dropped. And I was on an island. There wasn't many Michael Jackson fans who loved him as much as I did. And, you know, there was a lot of jokes and there was a lot of uh, people who just didn't understand it. But, you know, it's funny. But when you put the music on, they would absolutely, you know, jam to the music. But 
when it came to that that conversation about his blackness, you know, they questioned it and it was it was it was tough. And so over time, you don't have those questions anymore. I don't you don't have those conversations as often. I think people now understand. I think with him passing away, people give him, you know, more the benefit of the doubt more than they did back then. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it, especially like, you know, because he did start to talk about it a little bit more in in Oprah and then the Martin Bashir interview and then the autopsy report confirmed his vitiligo. Correct. So with the benefit of hindsight, I guess maybe one could say, hey, it would have been great for him to come out a little earlier and say what he was going through. But yeah, I mean, you're right. There's less of those conversations now as people learn about it. Yeah, and then, but then now you get a chance to see you know, how truly, what's the word? How do, how do I want to put this? Michael was fearless in the industry, you know? And I always said there's, there's a couple of things, three things that happened that really kind of changed the course of his life and his career. He made the biggest selling album of the world, went on the biggest tour, and then bought the biggest catalog, music catalog. And all that happened within like a four or five year span. And when those things happened, he did something that no artists really and especially no other black artists had ever done and so he was in control you know he had firm control of his career and the entertainment industry and you know it just then then his appearance starts to change and it just he became a lightning rod for negativity moving forward mm. So, Sean, you've really touched on my next question, and and I guess there's no debate that Michael has really become a massive target in the media with so much fame and success and groundbreaking musical art. With that has also come this incredible target on his back in a way. Now, what I would like to know from you is, you know, why why do you think he became a big target? Do you think it was because of that? Uh, unprecedented success you talked about earlier or was it the choices Michael made in his life or was it a mix? Why has he become such a target? Personally, I think it was a mix, but I think it also goes back to if you really stop and think about it. And I think you can, there could be a documentary done on this. You know, if you look at that period between uh, 1982 when he was recording Thriller, when he released Thriller, how massive Thriller was at the time then going on that victory tour, the biggest tour of the time, and then buying that the ATV catalog. He just did something, like I just said before, he just did something that no black artist would ever imagine doing. And then on top of that, buying Neverland. And so I, I just really think it started there. And I don't like to necessarily get into conspiracy theories, but you can definitely see that's where his trouble started. You know, it just, you almost feel like some someone, you know, or some people say, well, well you know, he's getting a little too big for his britches. And so, you know, we may have to take him down a peg or two. I wouldn't be surprised if those conversations indeed happen. But I also think that Michael even said it, and that's what you get for being polite. Something's deep inside in him, eating up the pride. <laughs> it makes him do things that he should not do. And and that's and 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 so that's and that, I think that's well documented that when Michael set his mind on something, you really couldn't talk him out of it. And in fact, the more you tried to talk him out of it, the more he would want to do it. And so I think a lot of that stubbornness kind of didn't help him either. And so I, I just think had Michael just 
that he just made Thriller and just kind of went underground, it would have been no issues. But I think he just continued to ascend in different ways. And I think he just, that made him a target. I think the, the, the Thriller and the, the buying the music catalog, I think those two things were just a no-no uh, for Black artists. And Michael was able to pull it off. I think he dared to do it. He yep. dared to do it. And I think yep. definitely that's, and even like sort of what we did, talked about early episode with Lil Nas X, he dared to do it. And he knew that it would get a certain reaction from some people, but yep. that was a glass ceiling for like Lil Nas X to smash through. And then Michael was smashing through those glass ceilings in quick succession, yeah. making huge, huge waves. And absolutely, I think that helped put that target on his back because it was attention and some people were like, well, hang on a minute. He's, he's getting too big for his boots. Yep. And again, I think, you know, and I, I can understand, you know, we're all like that sometimes where if you, you tell us not to do something and we shouldn't do something and we just want to do it anyway. And so I think there are some personal decisions that he made. You know, I, I certainly get it. I certainly get that he wanted to recapture, you know, his childhood. He wanted to, you know, create a place where kids can come, but that came with, the allegations that came with, you know, things that people were going to say. And so he really, I think he really did put himself in that position, but doesn't necessarily mean that he needed to be accused of it, but it's just, you know, he, he put himself in those, in that predicament, unfortunately. So since Michael passed away in 2009, how have you seen his estate handling his legacy? How would you, I guess, you know, if you had to give them an appraisal, how good a job they're doing, what's your opinion? So I'm going to quote one of my favorite Twitter friends, Jason Anderson. He goes by many different Twitter names, but he absolutely despises the estate. Sounds like he's a great been, guy. I want to be friends with him too. <laughs> he, he's taking a break Shit. from Twitter, and I told him I was going to drop his name on this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure you guys connect. But yep. um, he despises the the uh, he goes on. He writes. He's written letters to them. He's written uh, emails, and he's gotten you know uh, not so nice responses from them. You know, I just wish they had. It, it, it doesn't seem like they have a plan at all in terms of what they want to do and how they want to do it. I get that there may not be a lot of material in the vault and there may be questions around whether Michael would have wanted it released or not, but I do believe there is some material there and I would love to see some of that material released. As I stated earlier, I would love to see a triumph tour release, even the, um, the uh, victory tour. I would love to see, you know, those are things. And I love what Spike Lee did with off the wall, love what he did with bad, wouldn't mind him doing something with uh, triumph as well. But uh, those are things that they really should be doing. Uh, I'd love to see them doing if, if there are some material, some Jackson's material in the vault, I'd love to hear it. You know, it's not like they, not like, you know, other artists where you may have, you know, tons of material there, but, you know, give us something. And, you know, obviously, you know, the the Twitter account uh, is certainly not the best. Um, it, it has the feel of trolling fans and things of that nature. And that's certainly not what Michael would have wanted. And so I, the only thing is I just wish they have a, had a plan. You know, obviously, you miss the anniversary of Dangerous. You miss the anniversary of History. Uh, I, w I would love to see them roll out CD sets where, where they're quality. You know, we get some bonus material. We get some real quality material. 
Um, we were just not getting it. So, you know, I got kind of have to agree with Jason. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan right now, but I, I do want them to get better at what they're doing. But Michael. Sean, they did they didn't miss the dangerous and history uh, anniversaries. They put hoodies out for those. <laughs> we got hoodies. Come on. Some people are probably still waiting for them to arrive. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I guess. Like I, I, I got to give them credit for that, right? Yes, you're right. <laughs> got to give them credit for that. I just wish they would have. I want to hear a remastered version of Monkey Business. You know, uh-huh. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite tracks from that era. So just give me, give me, give me a remastered version of that. Yeah, yeah. I think well, it hurts a lot of us because we can see the potential of what, you know, sure, you know, we don't know exactly what is left in the vault, so to speak, but mm-hmm. the potential of what we were given over the decades in the first place, like the potential of the quality of that stuff and where that could be expanded out to in like tour packages and, you know, just what he gave us in his own lifetime, that is enough that you could still just celebrate and keep moving it forward to to new new fans and new products and stuff. And it just hurts so much. Well, and there's so many great stories about how Michael created in the studio. Mm. Um, there's, the, there's the story of, um, you know, even when you go back to, there's a video that was going around a few months ago, Tom Baylor talking about, you know, the creation of She's Out of My Life and Michael's performance of it. You get so many of those stories. You know, obviously you got Brad Sunberg, who, you know, he has a ton of stories. So you get all these stories. You, you got to believe that they can pull all that stuff together and put together a documentary on Michael's creative process. You know, we just we just don't see that. I mean, if yeah, so those are the, those are the little things. And you know, we were talking about the biopic earlier. Someone on Twitter put out a, a good suggestion. I would actually love to see this as well. Instead of doing a biopic, why don't you go back and recreate the two thousand what two thousand four trial? The, the trial. Recreate that just basically just from the uh, court transcripts. I think uh, Court TV even did it. At, you know, at the time. But go back and recreate that if you want to dispel some of those rumors, dispel some of the the misinformation out there. Why not create a biopic around that trial using the trial transcripts? That in and of itself could destroy the um, the notion that Michael was guilty of doing anything in that particular case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That trial especially is such a lens into his life because they were, uh, you know, the the DA was allowed to bring in historic claims to that trial. So much was looked at. They even looked at all these finances and everything. I mean, yep. it is an incredible lens to look at when you read those transcripts. So yep. that's a cool idea. I like that. Yeah. All right. So you've answered our next question as well, which was really about where to for the estate in the future. And I agree with you totally. They need to put the emphasis onto releasing quality products about Michael's art. And, and like you also said earlier in the show, that golden period of the late seventies and very early eighties, there's so much to be done there. I can't believe how many times I put on YouTube to put on a Michael Jackson concert. And the only concert that exists on YouTube in high definition is a fan uploaded version of the history tour. And that's just crazy wow. to me because this guy's the greatest entertainer that's ever lived. You can get, you know, Prince concerts and and every other artist you can think of in high definition uh, streaming on your TV, but you can't get Michael Jackson from his peak eras. 
from his, no. you know, from the estate. And I just think that's crazy. So I agree. I think they need to do a lot more work, but uh, hopefully in the future. But look, you, as you always say, let's not hold our breaths for that. <laughs> Anytime. Are, so. there, are there any Jackson 5 <laughs> shows? I know I no. have personally. I have the first leg of the Destiny tour on videotape, but I think that is on YouTube somewhere as well. I think I also have another show. I think I have that Mexico show yeah. on videotape, and then I have a very rough copy of the Victory tour, but nothing on the Triumph at all. So, you know, I, I would just love to you know see that material, especially the Jackson Five. You know, a Jackson yeah. Five show. Agreed, totally. All right. Now, I want to ask you one last question, Sean, and this is a question we usually ask our special guests, but I want to know from you as well. When all is said and done, how do you think Michael Jackson should be remembered? As the greatest entertainer, the greatest entertainer of all time. What he was able to do uh, has been unmatched by any other artist up until this point um, to go from you know, peaking in the seventies and then peaking again, you know, in the eighties. And then in that second peak, you were the biggest artist ever. You know, it's, it's rare that an artist will peak twice, you know, typically an artist will peak and then kind of plateau uh, for the rest of their career. But Michael plateaued and then went to another height. And so uh, you've got to give him credit for what he was able to do. He he broke down barriers for so many artists. He did what the others did for him. He did what James Brown, what Sam Cooke did for him, Stevie Wonder. Um, and so he did those same things. And, you know, some people may not want to admit this, but he did that for, for the Princes and the Whitney Houstons, even his sister Janet. You know, for all of those Madonna, for all of those artists who came in the 80s, they owe a huge debt to Michael. Um, and so... He needs to get the credit for that, and I think he will. That will always be his legacy, no matter how many, how how much people try to um, ignore his legacy and ignore the family's legacy. You 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 just can't get beyond the fact that, or get by the fact that what he did broke down barriers that you know will continue to people will continue or broke or broke down doors that people will continue to walk through for generations to come. Sean, brilliant answer. I have had such a great time talking with you today. I, I'd, I'd love it if, if, if our listeners, if they've really enjoyed what you've had to say as well, how can they connect with you online? I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle, handle is S-A-S-H-A-C-K-E-L-F-O-R-D or S-A Shackleford. That is primarily my uh, social media um, that I use. Um, I am on Facebook as well, but I'm, I'm kind of moving away from Facebook. Uh, I think it's time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I know, Jamin, you're not on. I've heard you talk about it. Um, and I'm, I'm getting to that point as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty much on Twitter and I love to interact and engage uh, with Twitter. I've actually met some really good MJ fans. Um, just want to mention, uh, I mentioned Jason Anderson earlier. Bernard Zollicoffer is a great fan and a great follower. Uh, and then you guys as well. So Twitter is the place. Absolutely. And Q, been great catching up with you again. This has been so fun. Oh my God. So fun. Just like MJ fan chat. It's yeah. been a while. So yeah, <laughs> I've loved it. A minute. <laughs> I've loved it. 
Well, thank you guys. Cool. Thank you guys for having me on and just uh, indulging me. And I can talk Jackson's all day. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, that is absolutely our pleasure. It's uh, It's been great. Now, Q, where can people find you online? Uh, my Twitter is what was the Q? What was the Q? Uh, and I'm also on Instagram, but it's a slightly different handle because for some unknown reason, they shut down my original Instagram account and I'm not getting it back by the looks of it. So it's very, very frustrating. And But my handle on Instagram now is what was the Q2? So it's like the sequel. The sequel. What was the Q2 uh, on Instagram? And you can find me there. Brilliant. And of course, the MJ Cast can be found all over the interwebs as well. We are at the MJ Cast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. You can subscribe to us as a podcast, as we're intended to be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Just search the MJ Cast. We've got news and discussion on the King of Pop and his family. And we also have special interviews with people that knew Michael Jackson and worked with him. Uh, and we've got some exciting episodes coming out for the rest of this year. Uh, I know that we've spent a lot of time uh, this episode talking all about Michael with his brothers and during the Jacksons era. And, and that has been amazing. And that's a highlight of, of his career. We are entering, though, as well into a period which is the anniversary of the Invincible album and the 30th anniversary concerts, which is the period of time that made me become a fan. So for a couple of episodes later on this year, we're going to be talking about Invincible, which should be great as well. So again, Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the MJ cast. It's been a pleasure and hopefully you'll get to come back on the show at some point in the future as well. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to it. And you guys keep up the great work. Yeah. Shout out to Jamin and Lisa and Charlie for editing. But yeah, you've been doing a great job, folks. Woo. Awesome. Well, I hope everybody enjoys their week ahead. Enjoy the MJ cast as you're commuting to and from work. Congratulations, Sean, on your promotion. That's really exciting news. Congratulations, Q, on your amazing uh, facial hair. I love nah, the, uh, the moustache. Yeah, oh, my God. It's very A lot nice. more greys than there were last year, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, everybody. Keep Michaeling. Michael on. Sean. Take care. Take care, guys. That's it. That's a wrap. Well done. Can I do a shout out to one of your listeners or sure. a couple? But just a real quick shout out to listener Serena. I know that she had some surgery this week or, you know, maybe a couple of weeks when this was released uh, after it's edited and put together. But uh, wishing Serena all the best and a good recovery. Um, I hope you feel better soon. And actually, my friend Jesse here in Perth, he had some uh, surgery second surgery this week so actually i just remembered yeah so shout out to jesse and hope he gets better soon as well um and also gareth if you're tuning in i because of my instagram disappeared follow my new instagram so i can 
like follow you back because I cannot remember your Instagram after the other one got shut down. So Gareth, you know who you are. <laughs> Q, bring in the yeah. thank yous. Thank you, Q. Yeah. You know me, grateful, grateful, grateful. All right, there we go. That's a wrap.